Like, where was I when I first met you? I know where exactly where I was when I met Alejandro Cantu, right? Which is one of my favorite people. I met you in a conference room in Phoenix. This is when... Were, were you a broker at Collier's? No, I was still at Digital Realty. Okay. This is when we were driving hard towards that data center coalition, which we couldn't get anyone to agree to, right? Because everyone was like, why the fuck would I remember that join concept. a coalition? What was that coalition again? Was it like a passport program that was like, hey, we all kind of feed? And Well, I'll give you the history of it. I mean, when I was at Digital, right, it was really predominantly the West Coast assets, which at that time were... 20 assets, right? This was still a tiny company back in 2009. Wait, how how in how early in to Digital's existence did you join? So they IPO'd 04. I joined late 09, right? And you know, within I mean, I, I mean that's that's a that's a good part to start with, right? It was like, how did I go with a digital? Well, right? listen, let's start with this one then. Yeah. <clears throat> As you can tell, I, I love these conversations, so I just kind of am sporadic and I'm all over Absolutely. it. Absolutely, go everywhere you want. I love it. We'll do this. So because we got into this new room, I don't know how well these mics work. So okay. if you don't maybe sometimes sit a little bit close to your mic, it may sound like I'm screaming and you're not. So sure. it makes it harder sure, for them. Sure. Yeah. But um, start at the beginning. Tell these people that are listening. Some people are going to be watching, right? Because you could watch it on Spotify or yeah. on uh, yeah. YouTube. But some people will just be driving and listening, so they're not going to see certain things that we may have pop up on the video. But yeah. introduce yourself. Who are you? Yeah. And all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah start absolutely, with the beginning. man. It's uh, Michael Ortiz, and the CEO of Layer 9 Data Centers. Uh, been CEO now for about five months. Been in the company for over two years. Just busting Exciting. rocks, picking up cigarette butts, flipping the lights on, right? I mean, yeah. it's like a pizza shop, right? This was a, a early concept that I remember Alejandro talking about years ago, right? So Absolutely. Yeah. He had conceptualized this four years ago, and you've known Alejandro for a long time. I had the privilege of meeting him when I was at Active Power, which was acquired by Pillar. But I was, um, I think some of my first jobs in this industry were all UPSs, right? I was a UPS service engineer, very prevalent for military backgrounds like mine. And then I got into the rotor UPS side of it, which was what right. moved me to Austin, right, in 2004. So yep. I've known Alejandro since he was probably since then. So, I mean, think about it. I've known Alejandro almost 20 years, probably. Oh, I'm sure you have. Yeah, and I know, I've known Alejandro since pretty much the day I set foot in Arizona with Digital Realty. Right? We'll go back. So um, Michael Ortiz, Larry yeah, Ryan, yeah, but yeah. where did so, you start? Where so, are you? So let me cut my teeth back kind of in the beginning. And I think a lot of people don't know the background. And I think it's it's not an interesting background. It's actually not a fanfare background. It's just how I fell into this sector, man. It's crazy. I think it's we'll how many. start from where are you from? Are you from, oh, I know yeah, you live in yeah, Indiana. Yeah, but... yeah, 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 absolutely. So born and raised in the Chicagoland area, right? My whole life. Got into schools in Indiana. Uh, went to Purdue. Good school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started out actually when I graduated from high school, got a scholarship to the University of San Diego. No kidding. Yeah, wanted to play soccer. And wanted to really? play soccer. What so position I, did you play? Uh, midfielder. Were you yeah. good? Yeah, it was pretty good. That, that's like all the speed. That's where they put the fastest people? It's where you got to have to have agility and leg work, and you got to be able to know how to be able to play the right you know, trajectory on the ball. You got to be able to know when to put the ball right in the right spot. You're not the fastest guy on the squad, right? You're kind of the midfielder, watcher, spotter. You're making sure that everyone's in our right place. I got you. Right? So how? What? So you were from? You said Chicago land. Chicago. So. Yeah, I was a brother from Chicago area. Yeah, any brothers or sisters? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. Five brothers and sisters. 
Yeah, that's it. Big huh? family, yeah. So yeah. where are you stacking in that birth order? Number one. Are you the oldest? Yeah, I am the oldest. No kidding. So yeah. you're the first one through the wall. That's the bloodiest, that's, right? You know, my parents were tough. They were tough on me. Good. My dad is a former military Vietnam vet, right? Decorated Purple Heart veteran. Marine Corps? No, United States Army. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, okay. I got drafted, was in studying architectural engineering. Really? Got drafted at the ripe age of 20 years old. Got sent to Vietnam, did two tours. Wow. Came back, decorated, uh, scored off the map on his tests. So they put him in demolitions. I uh, was a demolition guy, which, you know, I have the greatest level of respect for my dad. Because bananas job that that uh that war was a war that really no one knew why they were fighting right yeah they were given a bayonet a clip a platoon so was he an officer did he graduate from school the engineering architect thing or did they Finished? pull him out yeah he, he was only in for two years so okay. he, I, I don't really necessarily know what his position was on the out but he got into demolition but he got into demolition it's because he was really good at math i mean super smart at math what do you do when he got out became an architect Oh, okay, natural. Yeah, right? yeah. Good for him. Yeah, so it 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 really kind of laid the groundwork for. What I tell you is when you, we get into this whole story about like my work ethic, my approach. I mean, my dad was a ball buster. Before that whole was, generation, before yeah. the day of like you know reading the book about making your bed every day, my dad was like, make your bed every day. It's good though. It's the first thing you need to do. What, was his lineage military as well, or he you know, it's, I'm exceptionally proud that my family <clears throat> has served in the military. Grandfather served the United States uh, Army Air Corps. Uncles have served in the Marine Corps. Several distant cousins, or cousins, if you would say, Navy, Air Force, predominantly Marine Corps and Army. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So. Your dad was an architect and he served in the military. And what was his advice for you? Did he want you to be an architect as well? You know, my dad didn't really push that. He's like, you know, I want you to pursue what's really important to you. And I, and I actually want to be a lawyer. No uh, kidding. Yeah. I went so far to even go to law school. I went to Northwestern for a year. Okay. So you and, went, so I know I keep cutting you off because you, I wanted to understand how you were raised. So, so you're the oldest of five kids. Oldest of five kids. Chicago land father yeah. that was a combat veteran that drove you hard, which is you're welcome, right? That's why you're oh, a CEO. Exceptionally. So uh, that work ethic that he rolled into you lent itself to your advantage in soccer, I guess, which you- Well, you know what my dad was CSD? about? You know, my, my parents came from humble beginnings. My father and my mother were not poor. They were not rich, right? My mom was born and raised in Mexico, uh, originally from Spain. Uh, one of 12, she was the oldest of her 12. So at an early age, she had to work. Uh, my mom had aspirations to become a doctor, right? Met my dad when my dad came back from overseas, took six months off, went back to school, met my mom in Spain, they got married. Then they moved to the US, right? My mom kept on raising us. My dad kept on, you know, developing his practice, working hard, becoming, you know, a, a great individual, first and foremost. I always look at my dad. It's like, you know, forget about the profession. Just a good person. Oh my God, salt of the earth. There isn't a human being that I don't know that looks at my dad and says, oh yeah, Ray Ortiz. Right, yeah, just that's a awesome. great guy, and you know, like a lot of veterans that I can really appreciate, he never talks about the war. Only with regard to when he sees fellow vets. I say when they were the he others. He sees fellow vets when he's at the cemetery visiting my mother. When he sees veteran funerals, it's really hard for him. I still can't get my dad to go to the wall, hmm. and I've made multiple attempts. Right and pass away. Like, Very hey, moving. Let's go take a let's go take a trip to D.C. My dad's like, I know where you're trying to get me. 
you're not gonna get me. maybe one day he'll relent you know yeah. i i really hope so um i feel like there's just a lot of those like innate demons that he's got to close out sure. I, I think my dad saw a lot of stuff hmm. being on the front line of a demolitions team sure right oh he did i no mean doubt. be able to put off those those grenades be able to put off those because he was talking about those land grenades right? i don't know what they were called or landmines that he'd have to deactivate before the, the tanks came by massive dangers yeah. i mean can you imagine being in a jungle right 20 years old. So think about this though. He views the appreciation for his own mortality is greater than somebody that's never put themselves in oh. harm's way like that. Oh. So oh. It, when you when you think of, of those things, no, the value of that, and I say it, I, I mean, look, I got combat veterans on my staff that I've known for years and they still don't talk openly about stories that they have unless they're around each other and sure. they talk to each other about sure. those because- sure. Maybe they can empathize or understand better. Sometimes I just get to, get to be in orbit while they share those stories. Yeah. But um, the amount of pressure that those guys came under really lend itself to a, a, an interesting conditioning of the mind, which is what your father went through, right? Oh, so absolutely. Their ability to deal with high stress situations that normal people, I say, would <clears throat> rightfully, you know, have a, an impact of their productivity or capability. Those people tend to thrive more because they've experienced that's right mortality. So they're like laser focused on the important things after that. I I feel like I got that advantage when I was diagnosed with cancer too. But those those people that have been put in the craziest situations tend to be more focused, I think, as a byproduct. You know, it's kinda of funny you watch my mom, the type A, always running the household. My dad was always cool him, Luke. No matter what was going on, good, better, and different, right? And if he got upset, you knew he was upset. Right, and he didn't yeah. play. Sure, he's like, I need to talk to you. They're very deliberate. Absolutely, you <laughs> knew when you were in the penalty box. Sure, but with Ray Ortiz, it was always about keeping that maintaining of that. He always had a military mindset. I mean, it didn't matter. All he's seventy five years old now. He still gets up at six in the morning. Yeah, that military bearing does his thing. Right, he's got like his set things. Like he gotta, he's got to get done before nine a.m. And then he calls me. He's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like. Uh, I just started work. It's like, like clockwork. Yeah, really. I've been up since five. <laughs> you gotta love that relentlessness. Man. Oh, it's you know it has bled into my family. It has bled absolutely into me. Sure. Um, I mean, if there's anything else I can tell you that my my father who sees this will be immensely proud of us. Don't ever do something and say something and not do it. Right. There you go. Right. Be accountable for the shit you fuck up with. Right. Own it. Right. And when it goes well. Be the first to distribute, right, the fruits of that labor because I guarantee you, you didn't get that done by yourself. So I think, I mean, that could come from his lineage as well, but there's certainly a, a, a dose of that that we each take when you join the military, which is right. um, trying to stay humble or try to condition you to um, – lead from the front so you have to you know you have to you know, how can you expect people to do things if you're unwilling to do it yourself and then you have to love what you're doing because if you don't then why why, why can you expect them What's to do the it point? exactly so someone like that sounds like they had a great impact so um having the military impact you seems like it was a pretty cool story but you're going to you you had a scholarship to play at university of california san, san diego uh usd yeah okay. private, it was a private school all right so uh you had the opportunity to go play there as a so midfielder. Played, played for a year. Busted my leg up pretty bad, ACL, MCL. Oof. So I lost my scholarship. And then that's when you transferred to Purdue? I had to because at that point. It's closer to home. Yeah, well, USD at that time in 1992 was $69,000 a year. 
Oof. Crazy, right? Yeah. So obviously I was just crushed, right? Because that's what I wanted to do. And the crazy thing is that- you Plus know, San Diego's- I, Well, here's uh, the thing, you know, it, it, I, and, I, and I still to this day, and very few people know this, I always had an innate calling to want to be in the military just because of my dad, uh, cousins, uncles, right? Always been surrounded by it. Sure. And and then maybe it wasn't like that immediate innate calling of just you have to serve. It was like there's just a discipline about the military that has always attracted me, right? The, the notion that you're a unit, that you're accountable to each other. You don't know shit about each other, but mm -hmm. after basic... OCS, you know, people's pretty much their DNA chromosomes, right? I think the thing that they all share the most, and I can't, I'm certainly not speaking for the veteran community, but um, at least at some point, the minimum requirement that we all had to take was to raise our hand and take the oath. Right, right. To, um, to sacrifice everything, including our, you know, enough to including our lives. Sure, sure. For the protection of others, right? And there's yeah. a very selfless nature that comes with that. I think the military does just an incredible job of conditioning us. Like, think about how massive or how profound the the military has had on every vertical of industry, you know, outside of the military of course, of course. because of the leaders that they've injected because they do an exceptional job of getting everybody to kind of be singing from the same sheet of music. There's always going to be an outlier here or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, they call it slipping through the cracks, everything. Mm -hmm. But as a mm -hmm. whole, yeah. everyone does kind of capitulate to this concept of knowing like everyone else here would die for you right so i remember when i started when i left i had a great job working for a great operator and a great team i mean i really enjoyed what i was doing yeah but i remember starting this and someone asked me in the early stages like why did you do that and i said i guess the minimum i guess i got to a point in my life because i i came out of the military and then spent my whole civilian career you know navigating through this industry but trying to find something that would allow me to feel like i did when i was in right and that was right. i wanted to uh the standard i had was i refused to work with or for anybody that i wouldn't die for ever again because that's what i was really looking for was that, sure. that's what i got in the military so your father got that too right and it sounds like yep. he distributed that to his kids his oldest you know probably a little bit we tend to as fathers go a little bit harder on our firstborn sons, right? right than we right. do the average one, but right. but that's also good because now you're the natural born sheepdog and you are selfless in nature. It sounds like too, and you appreciate these things that your dad gave you. So, in many ways, you know, you're a product of the military as well. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, I wouldn't be remiss not to give props to my late mother who just passed away two years ago from cancer. Ooh. That that woman was a fighter, right? I mean, talk about a woman who had grit. A drive. Uh, there wasn't anything that Marie Ortiz was not capable of doing. She put her mind to it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, managing five children, it's hard enough. Then she had work and she managed my dad, right? I was like a combat veteran as a husband. Sure. Yeah. It was like, you know, my, my dad worked and my mom maintained the household. She was a chief life officer. But, you know, for what it was worth, my mom, in combination with my dad, are really ones that were really like, listen, nothing's ever going to get given to you. Nothing. And my mom and dad, you know, of Latin heritage and background, never played that race card, ever, ever. And I love that about them. Like, you know what? Expect nothing for that. Expect, in fact, you got to work harder, right? Because there's maybe a predisposition because of that. Like, my mom was always like, look, grind it out. Like, if the office is in until 8, you're in, you're in at 7, right? And if they don't leave till 9, you leave at 10, right? We hired uh, 
we hired a, a lady a few years ago and she was relentless. And I remember asking him like, you know, I love people that have like that chip on their shoulder or that grit. And I was like, sure. why, why do you, why are you doing this? Is it, you don't have anything to prove to any of us? And she goes, I kind of do it because I don't want anybody to ever think that I'm here because I'm a female minority. I want them to realize that oh, I, I'm here because of my, my capabilities. Absolutely. I never knew that, or I didn't understand that because that's just not the way that a, a white guy thinks, I guess, of course. You know? but of course. it's crazy course. to understand the pressures, of course. you know, or for us to learn or discover those in conversation. But when you, how did you end up from San Diego to Purdue? So I had a backup school. Uh, I was able to transfer back and I was fortunate and blessed that I had really good grades in high school and at my first year at USD. So I got a full ride. Nice. I went back to Purdue, great school. Never have a real great Awesome school. Oh, absolutely amazing school. And that's where I considered thinking about being a lawyer. I wanted to go to law school. Why did you want to be a lawyer? You just wanted to argue with people and Honestly, stuff? Honestly, to be fair and honest with you, I was captivated by that damn show, LA Law. No as kidding. As a kid. All I was right. like, you know what? They're articulate, they're smart, they get what they want, right? They make good money. I think I want to do that. Man, I can see that. Uh, and then I saw the movie Wall Street. I was like, <laughs> ah, you know what? I think I do want to be a lawyer. <laughs> but, you know, ironically at Purdue, my major was a minor in engineering and a major in political science. And it was crazy how I that went is very distinctively different. For yeah. sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was taking 18-hour loads, graduated like 156 credits because it was like in order to do both, you got to do both. Um, but, yeah, I mean, my first job had nothing to do with finance, had nothing to do with poli sci, had nothing to do. I would work in the summers in my undergrad at a hotel in the Chicago area. And at that time... Donald Trump was setting up the casinos in the Chicagoland area. So we'd see him all the time. And after a while, you know, I don't know if it's an accolade or not, but I, I, have, I can't be, I'd be remiss not to talk about that. Uh, I was a bellman and then I became bell captain. And the hotel's like, listen, you need to manage these high profile clients because you take care of these people really well. So manage, nice. this is the list of people that we're getting, manage them every week. You and the four bell captains manage the bell staff. And over the course of three years, I developed a relationship with this guy, Donald Trump. For real? Absolutely. Oh, man. Honestly, guys. Now we're getting into some... This is the first for this podcast. Yeah. So. so, so you know, probably the 50th time that I've been checking him in. And I don't need to say, you know, we all, call, we all kind of know the personality of Donald Trump. Sure. No different now than it was then, right? But how was it in person, I guess? Was it abrasive? Was it... You know, honestly, I'm going to say something that's probably very controversial. Because like there's a misnomer about him, sure he's got his ways, absolutely. Um, if he could afford to pay him ten dollars, but he actually pays you six, he feels like he won on you, right? Yes, he likes that game. But he's not a racist. He's not. I've never seen him in any form or fashion being a sexist pig. He's a go-getter, and I'll tell you that from the very jump that I met him, he was always just working harder than anybody. And he was one of those guys that'd get up, you know, he'd be at the hotel. And it's been, again, during the summers, during school. He, he wouldn't be up at nine having breakfast. He was having breakfast at five in the morning. Get picked up in the car by six, heading down to the casinos at seven. I wouldn't see him until sometimes midnight, right? I mean, he was a hustler. And I loved that about him. 
So in time with other people that we, uh, we obviously dealt with, uh, I checked him in. And I never forget this. It was a Thursday afternoon. Checked him in at 425. He was early. I was like, I wasn't expecting you. It's like, yeah, just meetings got done. It's all good. Just going to just put my head down for a bit. And I have to head out for some dinners. He's like, hey, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Like, I, you've been working here a while. I'm like, yeah, just my senior year is coming up. It's like, good for you. He's like, what do you want to be? I was like, I think I want to be a lawyer. He's like, no, you don't. Oh. No, you don't. I got too many lawyers working for me. You need to be doing something else. Mm. Okay. You know, you don't know what to say at that point. You're starstruck, right? You're a 20 year old guy. You're like, okay. <laughs> you know me better than I do, I suppose. But so you're like, you're like, look, and he literally gave me his card. He's like, the day you graduate, you've got a job with me. Nice. I'm going to sign the back of that card. I'm going to ask you to speak to this, lady, this individual. And that graduation for me was like three months away. I was like, all right. You know, I took the card back. Take chances. She, oh, I showed my dad, my mom. My mom was like, whoa, whoa. She, you got something about Donald Trump. And I let it go. And then I was like, let me, like and at night's continued to see, you know, I continued to see him. You know, it, it was like, because I took, because with my transfer back from San Diego, I lost a semester. So I had like that four and a half year rollover. Yeah. So I had to finish in the fall. Right? Oh, I got you. Not in the spring. So I finished in the fall. I come back and, you know, and I was like, I think we'll take you back on that job offer. And I thought he was joking. He was like, when are you graduate? I'm like, two weeks. Like, I'll see you Monday at the trailers. For real. So <laughs> I just like, all right, we're going to roll on this one. So I get up in my car, get up on my little Nissan Sentra. Drive down, get down to the riverboats. I'd show up at gravel pits. They're, you know, they're still constructing the docks. The boats weren't even there yet, right? But getting the pavilion ready. I walk in. I get this card. It's like, I was told to get this card. I don't know what this means. This lady immediately knew who the hell I was. Oh, wow. She's like, just have a seat. I'll be right back with you. I sat there for about half an hour. She's like, I was told to stick you somewhere. And I don't know where I'm going to stick you. But I saw your transcripts got really good grades in like mathematics and finance, and engineering. Okay, I'm gonna stick you in the finance group and operations group. Oh no, kidding! So I got tied to the CFO of what was then Trump Casino Enterprises. It was a Michael Kelly, and for two and a half years, I just rode under his wing and learned operations and finance and development and I got you know I got indoctrinated into like a, a ton of shit that I thought like oh, how am I even getting exposed to this stuff and there's stuff that they were asking me I'm like listen I don't even have no idea what you're talking about I think the stuff that's probably you just listen to the way you tell that story and the passion that radiates from you as you do it I mean it's great to learn those things those subjects that you're talking about like you know finance or course, procurement or whatever but what you're really learning are the things that you can't learn in a book, which is the social dynamic and chemistry or the way they engage with people. So oh, the, the way to be a professional. I totally. Mean, and that's the, you know, we have transitioning veterans, we have transitioning college kids we hire. And we always realize like, hey, they're just, you know, when you're a student, you're conditioned to just be, you know, you're like a baby bird in a nest and someone's vomiting right. knowledge down your throat all day, right? But right, right. as you become a professional, you know, you're, you're 
hunting for yourself or you have to begin to educate yourself or go and find those answers. So you have to be immersed in a classroom environment in a professional classroom environment where you get to see the way that these professionals with years of experience get to treat the people that are their peers or the people that work for them or the people they work for or their clients. But learning how to engage with those other people, I'm guessing that two years of being with whatever that CFO was, was probably more beneficial because... Oh, I mean, to learn the just the idiosyncrasies of little things of like, you know, within 18 months, I was able to figure out how to reconfigure the slot floor to be able to put the right slots at the right time. Why? Because the senior citizens came at nine and they walked in through the Westgate. They don't put $5 bets in the $5 slots. They're playing the quarters. And those are the most profitable for both. So you guys, you guys are, you were literally there in the earliest stages where you got to make Strategizing, money. yeah, with the CFO and the, and the head of finance. And, and literally we're figuring out how to do table drops and figure out holds and, and why we should, you know, we should be keeping certain tables closed until this time and why and when is it the appropriate time to start raising, you know, the buy-in on the poker tables. And it, everything comes down to is, it's with all things in life, numbers, right? Sure. The numbers never lie. And in that time frame, you learn like, wait a second, right? We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to move this. But on Friday night, we're shifting this. This part of the floor closes. We don't open that till midnight, right? We open this part of the floor first. We knew how to cater to guys like Michael Jordan, where him and Juanita would come in. And we knew how to separate Juanita in a way. It was like, listen, we got, we would deliberately, when we knew, well, we'd have Michael playing in the high roller pit. We need to have that entire 5 and $25 slot area cleared out for her. So we'd rope it off. Why? Because when Juanita would play with him, Michael Jordan would play like 5,000 our hands. Oh, so he was a little bit more cavalier. Now he played. And when we removed Juanita, right? He was more conservative. His, oh, God, no. His raise would go up to 25 Oh, the other way. Oh, gotcha. yeah, totally. The minute he walked away, he would look at that, that classic Michael Jordan look. After it. Pit boss would like raise, raise the marker, give him the marker $2 million. We'd raise the marker up. Then all of a sudden, we'd say that immediately, okay, minimum buy-in at the table is 25000 Well, what that does takes everybody out of the table so i gotta be honest i was really excited for this podcast right because um well not just because i've known you for a long time but because of what you guys are doing uh down in mexico right now and I'm, we're, we're gonna we're gonna unpackage a lot of things because i now as we're, we're talking i'm learning there's even sh shit tons more that i didn't know about you but yeah. i had no idea this whole story about yeah, Trump stuff. yeah yeah and um i can't imagine that that would be polarizing for anybody i mean the, the personal story that you're sharing is sounds pretty objective to me right and why you would have some respect for that guy for having treated you like this and giving you this opportunity oh, this guy i mean look i tell you trump gave me access to everything i mean and that was what's crazy just two three thousand employees right and for me to for him to straddle me right below the cfo that's pretty amazing so how did you go from that to because like you said we met when you were at digital yeah right and i'm trying to remember that man is the man who got me my job at jp morgan Okay, so that's so you went from working for him to J.P. Morgan. So when I was getting the finance, we were raising bonds, we were raising debt for the build or for the boat, right? We were raising yeah. three, four hundred million bucks. Gotcha. So it was the first time I've ever seen investment banking, and that was for the first time. I was like, holy shit! Again, remember Wall Street? Sure. This is the juice that I've been looking for. This is the type of work that I want to be in. You know, I got to be involved in a you know two hundred fifty million dollar raise at the ripe age of you know twenty four years crazy. old. Yeah, and it, you you learn the basics, the underwriting, how to pitch it, how to roll it, why you don't mention that to the equity guys, but why you mention that to the debt guys, right? 
we raised that money for the boat, paid for the boat, financed the boat, got the boat delivered. And then as you know, as soon as like we started getting ready for boat number two, you know, and I would never really see him thereafter. Once in a blue moon, once in a blue moon. Until it was like one of the best moments that even my mom and dad talk about. We had the grand opening, right? So the boat was open, but then we had a grand opening, right? So Trump, the kids. This is when I knew the kids, Donald Trump's kids when they were babies. Oh, right? wow. Oh, yeah. Like, So how long ago was this? This is 1998. Okay. Yeah. A long time ago. Yeah. yeah. So we had the grand opening and my dad's like, can we go to this? I'm like, ah, you know, I don't know, Pop. My dad's like, come on, get us in there, get us in there. For sure. I get him two tickets. I'm like, look, I'm going to manage your expectations, guys. There's going to be over 5,000 people on this boat. No, you will not meet Donald Trump. You need to understand that. My mom's like, oh, come on, come on, me, I want to meet Donald Trump. Come on, come on. <laughs> the short of it is that not only did we meet Donald Trump, my, he took like 10 minutes to talk to my dad. Oh, wow. Right? And he was just talking about how I was like, the boat, this and that, and this and that. And like the final last 10 minutes, he's like, listen, I'm going to tell you about your kid. This kid, he's got grit. He's like, people have told me he shouldn't be in this business. He's stuck with it. People are like, why are you in this business? What background do you have? Scrappy. Did you come from, did you come from New Jersey? Did you come from Ve yeah. Vegas? Did you come from Louisiana? He's like, no. He's like, and this kid never said no. And like, he was polite. And he'd walk away. But he's like, but this kid never said no. Anything I ever gave this kid, he figured it out. Nice. He's man. like. So, which is why I'm going to take your son out of the casino. And it was like that night. That he told you. That he told me. He's like, you're leaving the casino. And I mm. thought he was firing me. I thought I fucked up or did something. He was trying to get you rounded out. Yeah, yeah. He's like, listen, I think you're prepared. He's like, I, I think you lear you've learned how to get your, pun your face punched in and you still come back. You've learned how to keep your head down and execute and learn the foundation of a business and then build it to something. He's like, you're ready for eye banking. He's like, and I swear to you, this is a true story. Already had it lined up. He's like, you start in three weeks, J.P. Morgan. Holy cow! Yeah, yeah. So were you? So you were living in Chicago. They obviously have an office in Chicago, I'm sure, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, your first role was to go raise capital for him for the boat, or so my no my I he, oh you already he, did that. He so got no. me a job at J.P. Morgan at the investment bank at J.P. Morgan, and you know that was a more formal process. I went in through the investment bank. That's how I started my investment banking career at J.P. Morgan in New York. Did that for two years, and then I went to. Mitsubishi Tokyo Financial Group, went back to Chicago. That was a Chicago office, went back to the Chicago office. So in aggregate, five years of investment banking, right? On the sell side of the business. And then it peeled me into equity office properties, which was a office REIT that was owned by Sam Zell. Okay, so and that's that was, how you got into it. That was really my first taste in the commercial real estate. So what made you go that route? The hours were crazy at iBanking. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. 80, Enough 100 so. hours a week. You had no life. Sure. Make good money at Morgan. Made good money at Mitsubishi. The Mitsubishi hours were not bad. Probably 60 hours a week. But Morgan was crazy. Sure. I mean, back then, Jamie Dimon was like, don't bother coming in on Sunday if you ain't coming in on Saturday. Oof. Okay. Right? And he was not kidding around. But, you know, you learn that foundation, I'll tell you, Kirk, has given me in ways, a depth and understanding on how to look at the deal that just others don't have, right? That I've been able to look at how to assess a lease, a building, an investment, and I can see it from the lens of the debtors and the bankers, and I know what gives them pain points. So 
in ways, it's like I've got that ability to be able to go find and deal with those issues before they become big issues. And by the time it, they, you know, they're presented, because they never go away, the bankers are like, oh, you've thought about that. You've addressed that. Okay, that's a risk, which kind of leads us to the layer nine story of like the risk, right? The greatest risk at layer nine in Mexico was getting power. Ooh, right? Okay. Lack of power. So that iBanking background really bled me into uh, commercial real estate. And I was with equity for six years until we sold the company to Blackstone. Stayed on with Blackstone for a year. And then Blackstone introduced me to digital realty. And this is at the peak of the crash in 08, 09, where equity was not doing anything. Markets were weeks before ATMs were out of cash, right? Oh, wow. And these guys are like, you know what you ought to go to work for is a data center company. Like, what the hell are you talking about? This was so reminiscent of like me getting the jump at Trump, right? Like, yeah. oh, no, no, no. We're not starting this all over again. <laughs> not a rebirth. Sounds and, like it was though, right? Well, it was. And, and you know, these guys set me up with an interview with Faust. I sat down with Faust. I'll never forget the interview with Faust. It was- Where was it at? In, it... in San Francisco. Okay. I was like, look, man, I don't know shit about data centers. I don't know shit about data centers. Like, but you know, finance, you know how to property evaluate buildings. We don't have that capability yet. We don't know how to structure a lease in Chicago versus Boston or New York versus Bryan Street in Dallas. It's like, we need somebody that understands how to level level set this. So I joined the portfolio management group at Digital. And this is where I got to meet, you know, and I will do some name dropping here because I give them absolute accolades. These guys took the time to teach me the business. Guys like Chris Crosby, sure, right? Jim Smith, Scott Peterson, right? These guys didn't have to spend an ounce of iota of time on me. And I remember when I came on board, it's like, so what do you know about the business? I'm like, I don't know anything about the business. I don't understand its construction. I don't understand operations. So for close to a year, I just really dug my heels in and got to know the business at its core, right? Why do we build them the way that we do? Why do we build them differently? here versus there. Why is that so important that we build it to that kind of spec? And why do we have flexibility on this side of the fence? And it really helped me enable to have an understanding of the data center from a, maybe a non-engineering perspective, but from a perspective that now combined with the investment banking, I truly had a, a honed in set of skills that I was like, okay. And those skills, as my dad reminded me as a child, is like, you develop a skill, you never just put that skill up on a wall and hang it up. You take that skill and you leverage it. You know, different than when you learn how to fire a rifle, you become a marksman and an expert. And you take that, every, he's like, never stop learning. So I had great opportunity to have mentors like guys like Rick Burke at sure. Digital and, and others that enabled me to learn then the sales side of the business. Like, how are these guys pitching? How are they rolling? And I was able to sit in on meetings that normally a portfolio manager would never get to sit on. But I learned that side of the business and then it was like, then, okay, now let's run operations. How do these data centers operate? How do you staff them? Why do you staff them the way that you do? And I was really privileged. I got to run some really cool portfolios. Northern California, Oregon, the Seattle building with the Kleist family. I mean, that was just an experience in of itself because here you are taking an office building, converting it into a data center and then putting another building for a CSP, right? In the heart of Seattle. Sure. Yeah, good luck trying to figure out how to get power and fiber right to that new building. 
And then it led me to Los Angeles, where the portfolio really wasn't performing. We had static assets, right? We were able to figure out and work with the team on how to get, you know, the marketing of the assets better appealed and positioned. Got those assets stabilized. And then Faust is like, look, you got, uh, here's your next challenge. I swear, this is all very reminiscent of like, this sounds like Trump shit because it's like, as soon as I get done with something, you're sending me to do something else. So Faust is like, I need you to go fix Arizona. Arizona, we're getting our asses kicked. Van Buren? Yeah. Van, well, we weren't, you know, we weren't leasing to the velocity we wanted to. We had 2121 South Price Road that we had just bought. We're converting it from a Schwab building, adding another 30 megawatts to it, right? And we just weren't getting the leasing velocity that we wanted. So what came to fruition was, you know, about six months later was, okay, I think we need a data center initiative. We need a data center bill. This is the problem when you're putting a traditional idea like that. You own it. Oh, okay. So, yeah, they um, they love the concept, but they don't want to be buried to it if it fails. And that's a tough, that's a heavy rock to roll uphill, right? So, so literally, these guys are like, hey, you're going to move to Arizona. And you're going to help work and with you're the legislators. Help, help get legislated, which I've never run a legislative coalition sure. before. Like we hired some really smart lawyers and lobbyists, and it just sounds like brain damage. Oh, I mean, it sounds like because you got to imagine, right? Here, you, I'm still learning my sure. job as a portfolio manager, right? Well, it's um, you know, we were talking, I think, off camera, where I'm like, I've always felt like we've been in orbit around each other, but we play on different sides right. of the industry, and I've come to learn. Um, the way that some people view it is you're either looking at the data center industry from the bottom up or from the top down. Top down obviously being finance and money. You know, Shap, another you know digital guy. And I don't know if there's a, a company in our industry that's had a more profound impact on this industry um, than digital because in those early days, I mean, look at all the companies now that have someone from digital in their C-suite, right? Oh, it's, it's like going to UC Berkeley for an engineering degree. Like, if you, if you got that baseline of education, that degree takes you anywhere. Well, and it doesn't surprise me at all that, you know, I don't know Scott and I, I don't know Faust, but I certainly know Crosby and I, I've gotten to know Jim real well, right, over right. the years. And right. those guys are pretty unassuming geniuses in the sense like I've learned that there's no such thing as a stupid question even to them, right? So they're the first ones that are always trying to give me some sort of knowledge, but they give it to me from the top down, right? right so right. like if I'm sitting down talking about a data center, sometimes it's from the optics of having to build it and you know control the schedule, the cost and the integrity of safety or you know the clients that are trying to tackle the program or not even done handing it over to operations. Right. And these guys are like, no, 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 let's tie everything back to where you make, you know, like Shap was the guy that helped me discover the breadcrumbs that lead it back to like everything we do is just a ripple effect or a byproduct of a purchasing decision that's made at this level and that you have to be able to understand the Absolutely. industry from those optics. So, and I mean, I don't know where he got it from, but I'm sure he got it from Crosby or some of those same Look, guys too. And, and, and I got it from Shap. I mean, one of our biggest deals at that time, this is before 10 megawatt deals were prevalent, right? Sure. We did our first 10 megawatt deal with a retail commercial provider in, 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 Arizona? in Phoenix. Okay. Now, the thing about this deal is that it was different. And I'll, I'm, you know, I'll name drop Shap now. Shap was running Central Region, right? And I was on the West Coast. And this group came to us and said, and we'd never heard of this before at Digital. At least I had never heard of it. And you know, we were looking at all the bigger deals at Digital. We won't lease transportability. 
Like, you want what? So this is 2012, right? This is 10 years ago. We're going to bite down on 10 megawatts to start. And we're like, what are you talking about? I mean, our biggest deals up to that point were Zenga at two megs, right? I remember when two megs was a big deal. Microsoft at two and a half megs. This group came back at us and said, we're taking down 10 megs to start. But we want to be able to transfer infrastructure at different sites within your portfolio. Genius. Right? Smart. So I, I called Chap up. I'm like, Chap, what the hell? Have you ever seen a deal like this? He's like, no, but I love it. I was like, he's the type of guy. He's relentless. So he'll oh, he's relentless. He'll, and he rolled his sleeves up. And he's like, I think we can figure this out. He's like, we could spread that love between Phoenix, yep. Chicago, and Dallas. And with Chap's help, right? Chap's hearing this, man. I, I owe you a bottle of cocoa or an even nicer bottle of liquor for this. He's a white claw. Zima Sh- guy. Chap was like, look, we'll move. We'll let them move chess pieces as they please. But we'll only let them do it twice. So let them recalibrate, right? We can't we can't move two mags instantly. He's like, so you're going to get two shots to move, re- reposition your portfolio. And with guys like Shap, I was able to learn, like, you can do least transportability when that wasn't even a word then. And now it's commonplace, right? For the cloud to say, I want 25 megs, I want five megs in Ashburn, I want five in Chicago, I want five in Dallas. But if I want to double down on, on Virginia, I want the same terms across all three portfolios. There's only a few guys, I think, that would really try to get super flexible and wrap their mind around the construct that allow that to happen from a finance piece, oh, right? Because Absolutely. Because that's a lot of work, but it's also a big win. So you have to find one people that are massively competitive that are going to do, they're going to relentlessly work to make that. That's right. It's a finance engineering role, right? But it was an exercise that, you know, you learn, you're like, oh my gosh, you can do this to so many other deals. Yeah. You can bifurcate them. You can break them apart. And then became the concept of learning how to ramp these folks in, right? Because, you know, you don't buy two megs and move 800 racks in a week. It takes time. But you have to think that through. Like Absolutely. you're modeling that. And that's right. That's right. I you know, digital realty enabled me to have that base that background that with guys like Shap and Smith and Peterson that allowed me to be able to look at any deal from here on out. I'm like, oh yeah, I've seen that scenario. I think that that's what helped lend to their massive explosive of organic growth was how flexible and creative they wanted to be. Right. Sure, like sure. You guys guys like Jim that has a huge brain who will engineer something on a napkin to make it work from a technology basis, but he also understands finance, does those Crosby and all those other guys. So like those guys were massively flexible, I think in those early days. And then I think that maybe some of those growth models shifted and and maybe it had to do with that, uh, that creative competitiveness that- oh, Absolutely. I'm not I mean, saying- I mean, I look at digital now, they're a behemoth with over 2,500 employees. I was employee 243, right? And I I came into the show five years after they sure. came out of the ground. Right? Sure. And that time was a, such a unique time. And I think it's a, I think a lot of people that were in that 09, 14 range will say this, that shop was so flexible. They're like a bunch of entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. They never seen deals this size. We're like, well, we're going to have to figure it out Let's on the fly. We're going to have yeah. to figure it out, right? Which is what makes you grow. I mean, you, you, get, you get a strand of copper, a piece of metal, and a settling torch. Like, make me a bracket. Okay. You have to have that finance background to be able to compare it to the ability. Like, you have, that's what makes finance so important. I mean, I think finance is 
probably the thing that shifted. Remember, there was a time in this industry where everyone was like, oh, it's got to have, you know, 11 nines or, right. I mean, you're all getting a two right, in right, SLA, right, or, you know, right. but they, they had all the, you have, people that were really smart that would come in and be like, oh, I need the flex capacitor and it has to be at a four <laughs> plus seven. You know, I'm just stupid sure, as shit. Sure, sure, And then finally some people with, that could do long division were like, wait a second, guys, let's let's really realize what what is gonna move the needle here on volume and velocity and it's not gonna be the engineer. Like we're, no one's gonna pick you because your design is stronger or you have better diesel engines or, you know, they're gonna pick you based on the way that you can make a pencil better for them. And, sure. And it's that creative nature to be one, I need that from a sales perspective to, to know that we need to be at an advantage, but two, you need to have the horsepower to be able to do that math, to figure yep. out how to engineer that solution. Absolutely. I think that that's what makes that, there was some, you were a digital for a long, what, five, how long were you Four there? Four years. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then- And uh, then I switched, to, went to the dark side, went to brokerage. But let me tell you the story, how I went to brokerage. He like, I, anyone who's worked ever worked with me, these guys now at layer nine or anyone, I quote my dad probably 20 times a day. So I went back to say, dad, this is what kind of where I want to be in 10 years. He's like, how are you going to get there? Right? So you got to map that out. He's like, you're not going to chop that forest down with one machete. He's like, you have to have a line of sight. You have to have a target and you have to be managing yourself to that target. Like, well, how long is it going to take me? Right? I got rationing for so much a day. I can walk so many steps a day. Right? Yeah. I can't exhaust myself because if I fall asleep, I might kill myself, right? Day two, he's like, you got to take this thing in steps. He's like, well, what's the next step? I said, well, the piece that I haven't been on is the sales side. I haven't, mm. I haven't sold to the customer. It's like, well, then go sell to the customer. Because by then you were just a buyer. You were working with these brokers to go find assets. And... Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. Okay. So my dad's like, okay, you got the fundamentals. You understand finance. You understand how to, he's like, you have the perspective of how the provider makes structures the deal. Now go learn how the end user is looking at that deal. And that's what led me to Colors, right? Why them, by the way? Because you know, at the time, I mean. Oh, that was a leap. That uh, was a big leap, yeah. right? I mean, I'd ask me how many clients I had. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I think that there's a couple other broker shops that are more prevalent. Sure, you know, sure. You know, here, what, so. what Colors matched up well for me is that one, they were in Phoenix. And by the time you do this coalition of raising that data center initiative, which look at it now. I mean, every day I see these stats on Phoenix. Oh, I, I, I'm so proud of that. Bauer posted something yesterday on LinkedIn. Oh. That talked about like I I didn't realize it, but he had he shared an article where I guess Phoenix had the most lease signed. Like it, maybe it was last year. You know last... when we when we passed that initiative, you know, a good year for Arizona was 50 megawatts, 50, <laughs> 50, and I mean 50 aggregate. That was digital, yeah, Cyrus, yeah. right? I O. Not anymore. No, I mean it's... now you're. There's more growth there than everywhere. I mean, it's crazy. Virginia. But you know that that initiative in itself itself dynamically changed. It was the when we passed it, we're the twelfth state to get a data center incentive program. There's thirty five states now that have that program, right? Like like, like it. You were the twelfth, twelfth state. Which was get. the first? I guess Virginia. You know, you know, it's a good question. California. I don't, I don't know. No, no, California will never have it because they're broke. Okay. Um, I would get candor that Virginia was probably one of the first. Gotcha. But you know that man, that that market dynamically changed the environment. And in the process, when you're creating a coalition, they get what is competitors to agree to one synchronized thing. Explain to anybody that's listening, like coalition that came together. Because I think oh, with yeah. Sylvia Kang, a Cyrus one. Yeah, she, yeah. And that's how you and I met, yeah, right? That's yeah. I was I was dealing with Stu and Tesh. Sure. Right? That's and right. and I was getting you guys to try to come on board with us and 
there was some angst. We're like, whoa, 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 we were all gonna be rowing in the same boat together? Yeah, yeah. Back then, I think it was, I think most of these operators viewed everybody else's oh, competitors, was, regardless if they were a carrier was, hotel or it, retail. It, it was like, wait a second, you want me to be in the same row, be in the same foxhole yeah, with you? Yeah, there was not a lot of collaboration. This and day. I was like, look, we, we, if we don't have a team effort here, right? consensus as to what we ask for and if there's one of us that says you know what don't do this the politicians won't listen we have to come as a tribe and come with the ask but before we come with the ask we need to show the state what they're going to get for giving us this and we are one of the first coalitions that ever presented economic impact models and a lot of that was sylvia so it was like we've got to show them that for every dollar that we get what do we give back? And that took time. Cause you can imagine politicians, That's, right? Yeah. Plus the model, that data, and the oh, integrity, of the data. putting the data together, aggregating it, validating it. That took time. But again, I always fall back to investment banking. That gave me a foundation that allowed me to look at anything from an analytical standpoint and, and dissect it. So Sylvia and I worked together along with a, a tribe of Indians that get this thing together. I mean, this thing, this coalition probably grew to 80 people by the time it was all done. We passed it on its first run. So, so that coalition, uh, how long did it take to pull that? From soup the nuts, eighteen months. Eighteen months. And who all did, were you the captain or the first quarterback of it? I did, would say that I was on the lead team. Yeah, okay. I would say that uh, Sylvia was really, really close to me at the first officer position because she was just so wickedly smart. She's, you know, she, I, I still view her as one of the best site selectors in the country, uh, and she knows her stuff. Uh, Tash was immensely helpful, right? With at at, uh, at Cyrus, Tash Stu. is another guy that looked at deals the same way that Shaft did, right? Oh they, yeah, Tash Tash is an animal. I love that savage. Guy. Oh, but he's ultra competitive, but not in a way in which he's going to compromise like morality and things. But he's there's he a, wants to win deals. There's a reason why Tash is doing what he's doing in Africa for sure. Because there's only a few hands like the people that could do that in Africa. Well, that's what I'm saying. There's some rare people in this space. But those deals, I think, you know, kind of like if we took a, a quick pit stop and like I kind of assessed my career, it's been built on mentorship, right? People who took the time. And that's going to lead to why we developed culture at Layer 9, right? Because there's going to be a point in the cycle we need to start giving that back. Oh, listen, man, we're going to spend just nothing but dedicated focus on that part because I have a lot of, I've been tracking Alejandro's excitement, you know, as he's oh yeah hitting milestones and i know that i know that you guys have been on that journey together since day one but my thing is is i have a lot of things to learn from it that are going to have an impact on i think a lot of the listeners in this industry yeah that some people don't know where they fit in this industry they don't maybe they're not in the right role right now or maybe mm -hmm. they're not the right company right now um and they just don't like where would they go and until they figure out what they're going to do you know they're going to stay where they're at and not operate or you know or maintain a level of mediocrity, but they're learning. Everybody's got a certain skill level of skill set in this industry, right? And the one guy that claims to be the jack of all, master of all, is, that's the guy you need to run away from, yeah. right? Uh, there are so many different aspects of this business that I still think haven't been peeled back. I mean, you're naming Mark Bauer, man. That guy's relentless. He's a machine, mm -hmm. right? And as much as I saw him as a competitor for years, I was like, man, why is that guy winning? That guy had a formula. And it works and it still works, right? And I still see him, not only as a peer, but I look up to him because he's proven, right? He was in the industry when no one was in it. When the firehouse was on fire, Mark Barr was running in it, right? And people were like, well, how's Mark Barr winning these deals? I'm like, 
It's because he's got grit. That dude's got more grit than most people I know. He, he is, works hard. I like oh, Mark a lot. He's a hustler, man. Smart he guy. is he is a hustler. Now tell something about Mark Bauer that a lot of people don't know. When Mark Bauer gets home, he's a different guy. Oh, really? I've spent time with him and his family when I first went to Arizona. He was he opened his home to me and said, Hey, stay here for a couple of nights. I'll stay at the hotel. And I was I met his wife, Susan, and their lovely children and their sons. You know, now one of them served in the military. Oh, he's really? got two other boys that have done in the and that's one of the few I say legacy brokerage families that he's been able to hand that torch to off to his boys and they've done a great job with it. But oh, I mean the Bauer family I had a great respect for and and Mark himself was a big part of you know giving that coalition because Mark knew everybody. Yeah, Mark, he, Mark was the guy who's like oh, oh who do I gotta have in this room? He's like well you gotta have that guy that gal this guy this guy this guy. I don't get a hold of him. I'll make a phone call. I've tried to get him to be, uh, I always have brokers give us for like, we're doing the DCAC live conference next week. And we always kick it off every year with a broker kind of given a state of the industry, because I do think that the brokers have line of sight to things. Um, there, at least there was a time where, where you guys were seeing, um, things long before the rest of the industry, because you're the ones working with operators sure. to go find real estate to sure. buy so they yeah, can yeah. build for mega clients that are taking down the entire building at a click, right? So right. the brokers tend to have, you know, vision inside or behind the green curtain of laws. And I always, since we started this thing in 2015, I always used to broker first, just so people could start with a baseline of what's some people just uh they maybe work for a company that's working in texas or in the central part of the us and they don't see what's going on industry-wide because it's a very cyclical industry where some parts of the of the country turn on while others are kind of declining right, right. so you see market swings in terms sure. of sure. product demand so if you if you're sitting in one that's on a downswing it could be easy for you to think that the whole industry is taking it in the pants. Well, in reality, you know, Virginia is just getting, you know, clobbered with demand or, you know, the Pacific Northwest right, or whatever. Right. So, you know, brokers tend to be able to have a lot of visibility into a lot of things. And at that time, you know, you're talking about going to work for one and you worked for the largest data center provider in the world, probably at that time, digital, right? Sure, and sure. then you're like, I'm gonna go work for a broker to go find tenants that are gonna go into these same co-location facilities, right. right? Yeah, yeah. That's a crazy shift. It's a crazy shift, you know, but I'll tell you that I was really blessed because when I made the shift, it wasn't long before clients that were customers inside of my buildings at 600 West 7th, at 365 Main, at 720 Portland, and sort of say, hey, you understand my pain, right? You wrote my lease. Oh, for sure. Right? Yeah, I didn't think about it. So now I need your help renegotiating it. Oh, I gotcha. Or, so there's a lot of value or, in that, or, I guess. Or, or hey, man, I'm expanding, and I'm not really sure how to look at this market, right? Can you help me understand that market? I know I've got to be there. I just don't know to what extent I've got to be there, when i got to be there. And again, it goes back to the numbers, being able to analyze the numbers, right? And I think I've always been good with people. I think I've been very fortunate Again, this goes back to my mom and dad because of their personalities. My mom was always about, you know, numbers, 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 numbers. Know your numbers. My dad was always about solutions, right? Think about the objective, right? And I know this all comes back from the military. This is my dad, right? That's awesome. Living, breathing. Think of the target. Think about the time you got, right? Right? Where, where are you starting? Where do you have to end? How are you going to get there? Who are you going to bring with you, right? What are you going to bring back? Because you're likely going to bring back more than you brought. So be prepared for that. 
that process enabled me to just be successful in what we did. And I was able to do some great deals. It, I mean, it, admittedly, it was an experience that I, I never forget, right? It, that led me eventually going back to the provider side. It was at DuPont. Oh, that's in right. 2016, where I went back to DuPont. Well, I went to DuPont. And I got to tell you, uh, I've had the privilege of working for some amazing shops. All those, you know, equity, JP Morgan, Mitsubishi, and every wave learned something more. But when I walked into DuPont, that was like walking into a Mensa club. Oof. I mean, you're like, holy shit, everybody is smarter than me here. Everybody knows their stuff. And it was a small outfit of about 150 employees, but man, these people know how to take care of the customer, right? They knew how to build, they knew how to manage relationships. They didn't get caught in the weeds of things. They just did deals. And it was evident in the way they were leasing their space. They leased space faster than anybody. This is back in the day, Kirk, when we were getting criticized by Wall Street and Main Street. Why is a data center operator like you driving 60% of your revenue with seven clients? You should have a portfolio of at least 100. Oh, God. Yeah, because they only had like 20, 25 oh, clients. 25 like clients made up 80. 600 million in top yeah. line revenue. Yeah, it was right. like 25 clients. Yeah, you I, guys suck. I never yeah. I never forgot when I saw the rent roll. I, I was, and I was like, there's got to be typos because it's like the same five. That's the ideal. That's same Nirvana. Same five groups. But that's exactly right. That's, it, right. that's what you want. That's exactly right. You want repeat business because it's a lot easier to get that repeat business than go find new business. Well, it's, it's just think of the... Think about the business model that it takes to manage 25 clients. Now think about the business model it takes to manage 500 clients. Right. Which one's easier to manage as a business model? Right. Right. So that wholesale model that they picked up on, I mean, obviously that's why digital acquired them. But so you were there and then through there the sale, you go, you're through, right back to the full circle. Through the sale. Yeah. Stayed on for a bit. And this is when Alejandro, this is now the seating of Larry. So when did you meet Alejandro? I knew Alejandro. This is where I'm going to spend at least 10 minutes on this cat. Because I got to tell you, there's just something about this dude that just people don't know. And if, if I get the 10 minutes, we'll sprinkle his background on it. And when he sees this podcast, he'll be like, oh my, <laughs> you, you did lay it all out. I knew him in 2012 when I was starting to really develop a, a, a network in the industry. Right? I didn't know anybody until about 2012. And the Data Center Coalition obviously put me in that forefront light because I had to meet everybody. I mean, imagine from seven in the morning until six at Phoenix, I was a portfolio manager. And from six at night until midnight, I was kissing babies, having dinners. Coalition stuff. Coalition shit. Yeah. Right? My, I had to work in 80-hour work weeks. And that's when I met Alejandro. Mm. He was on the distribution side, I believe, at that time. Yeah. Um, and immediately when I met him, he was just a, a very quiet guy like kind of self-composed I mean, he's six foot 12 this where, dude I mean, is like a, six foot 12 yeah no, he's crazy tall. He, he's of mexican descent first i was like first of all they ain't no mexicans that are six twelve. the first thing i when i first saw him the first thing i did when i walked up to him is i go can you dunk right right because i had talked to him for months on the phone right so when he came to the he's gonna hit me on his podcast but he absolutely has zero zero athletic capability i think he said the same thing he's got about a two inch vertical <laughs> That's hilarious. So, you know, I meet this guy in 2012, but I'd always kept in contact with him. We had close friends that were in the same sure. industries. And, you know, at Digital, we had actually dabbled in Mexico mm -hmm. back in 2012. We were piloting something down there. We were spearheading. We're like, you know what? This is the next frontier. It never really quite took because back then, even as undisciplined we were, our investors were like, you know, that's a 
that's a big swing. And if you don't get this right, that's going to have a lot of eggplant on your face. So we pulled off on it. Hmm. But I'd met him again. And this is when he was dabbling in Mexico, doing business in Mexico. Because he's been in the business down there for a dozen years. For sure. And on the U.S. side. Which I tell you, this is why this company is the way it is. Because he has the perspective of both borders. Right? So I meet this guy. We've always kept in touch. You know, I'd say we were good acquaintances. We weren't really good, good friends. I didn't hang out with him that often. Until about 2016 when I joined DuPont. And Alejandro was like, Hey, I've got an idea. I've got an idea. I'm like, sure. All right. So he invites me out to a Pebble Beach event that his company was sponsoring. I mean, they did the full fanfare. 12,000 square foot house, all the stops, food, access. It was really nice. So I'm with him for a week. And there's a picture that will end up in our data center. Uh, He's like, I got to talk to you about something. Someone, for whatever reason took a photo of us chatting. And I don't know why, because it's not, it's nothing. It's like in the far background, you see this whole 17th hole of Pebble Beach. And you know, we're on the veranda, this just stupid home that I had, you know, have no business in, right? <laughs> so, nice. So he's like, I want to light up Mexico and I want to do hyperscale. And I want to do it in the DuPont Thyros method. Like hyperscale in Mexico? Does Mexico even have data centers? Yeah. You know, I always known to be little five, seven, eight megawatt little incubators. That the Keo networks of the world are the ones that own that market. He's like, no, no, no. There's a, it's a wave and it's coming. The cloud is here and it's heading down. He's there. been saying that for like five years. Oh, he's yeah. been saying this for five years. So again, Alejandro will get a laugh. So I put my portfolio management hat on and I said, all right, you want me to look at this? I want you to start. And he's going to laugh so hard when he hears this. He sees this. I'm going to give you a list of things you need to start thinking about before we even make a trip. And it started with the basics. Like, do you understand and triangulate land relative to infrastructure and power? Have you spoken to the government, right? Do you have a sense of how that market is connected to the other regions? Where are the loops, right? Where are the interconnectivity points? And that was one, two, and three. And I don't think on that list was probably 40 things. So this is my Mr. Miyagi moment. <laughs> Again, you, when he hears this, he's going to be he's gonna laughing so hard. So he got done with it. He hustled through that list. Like in three weeks, he's like, I got it all done. Like, did you flip over the page on the other side? <laughs> he's like, what? There's another page to that, tab two on the Excel spreadsheet. He's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. There's like another 60 things in there. But he's relentless. So. He's, he's a relentless. He's a machine. In a month and a half, he got me everything I needed to kind of start assessing the market. And, you know, the data started very empirically showing that absolutely there was going to be a demand that was going to start coming. Again, this is way before the thoughts of COVID. So I made the decision. And at that time, when I'd gotten bought out by digital, I had a float. I had a non-compete for a while. So I was like, back well, to Collier's or something? No, I, I just, you know, I just... I parked my license back at Carlyers. I did a couple deals to kind of feed the family. And I was like, you know what? I got enough money in the bank where I could take a swing at this, right? And again, as I, I'll tell you, I go back to my dad for almost everything, right? Like, Pop, this is what I'm thinking. He's like, does this align with the vision that you had of wanting to be a CEO? Mm, gotcha. And if it doesn't, then don't do it. Because it, at this point, you have to be laser focused, right? Because based on our schedule, you've got 
four years to hit that mark. And that mark for me was being a CEO by the time I was 50. Oh, gotcha. So Alejandro and I start piercing the veil on this thing. And you know, Alejandro's ability to be able to penetrate that market is- Yeah, he knows everybody question. down there. He knows I've everybody. done work with him down there. He knows everyone. And if he doesn't know anyone because he's a, a shark, he'll find the, the avenue. He knows everybody. Yeah, right? he has connections. Two to phone calls. It's truly six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but mm -hmm. then six degrees of Alejandro Cantu. Yeah. So we're able to start figuring out that it's very clear that Querétaro was going to be the next Ashburn of the way it was set up. It's 165 miles north of Mexico City. And as you can tell, and if you've seen the headlines, Mexico City just had its like third major earthquake in the last two weeks. That whole city sits at the base of a crater that sits on liquefaction soils. So think of Los Angeles, that's Mexico City, which is even hard to comprehend that 24 million people live on an island that basically floats 5,000 feet up in the air, which is why you don't have data centers out there because- Where are the data centers in Mexico? Principally in Querétaro. So that's uh, 130 miles north? 165 miles north. Okay. Yeah. And what really established Querétaro is 30 years ago when the industrial corridor of Mexico found that this place was ideal because of its ports access, east and west coast, the airports, there's four major airports within 100 miles of Querétaro. The rail, the main rail that comes from McAllen, Laredo, slices through Monterey and goes through Querétaro on its way to uh, Mexico City. And that whole region, known as the Bajio region, sits like on the top of a plain, of a base of a mountain. So when, a little bit of history, when that meteorite hit the Yucatan Peninsula, it shifted Mexico physically 15 miles. It was that powerful. And like an accordion, it squeezed the entire country where the center of the country is pinnacled up like a peak, like the Appalachians, right? And on the east side of that are the plainlands that have rich soils. And on the west side of the country is where you see these purified sands, which is why the sands are so different on the west border of Mexico as they are the east. So Caretaro sits like at the base of one of these mountain ranges, which means you're out of the floodplain, right? You're in rich, good soils. You're in soils that you could dynamite and within 20 feet you're hitting bedrock, right? So industry down there moved into that corridor 30 years ago. Automotive, aerospace. I mean, if it's got a component that's in an American car, likelihood is it a part or many parts of that came from a plant that's in what Mexico. I was ask. But in Mexico, like uh, America has different geographies associated to verticals, right? So right. like New York is finance and yep. you know, we're in Texas, which is energy and you know, the Pacific Northwest or the West Coast. Yep. That part of industry that came to, how do you pronounce the name? Caretero. Okay, yeah, I'm not even gonna try that one. I think you're making that word up, by the way. But <laughs> if, you, if you think about that town. It took me six months to say it right. And, you're, and Alejandro still says I say it wrong. Oh, like then, <laughs> like whenever he and I talk, I use the worst Spanish ever. I know. And it probably just drives him crazy. But... Oh, it drives him <laughs> He'll so, tell me all the time, like, stop speaking Spanish. I know. <laughs> That's why I level it out a lot. So my thing is, what's the industry there? Is it more automotive in that region? Or yeah. is there other so, things that we're outsourcing? So the cameras may not be able to pick this up, but it's the only way I can describe it. Yeah. So think of like Mexico facing your way. And here's the Yucatan Peninsula. Okay. And here's Mexico City. Where's Tijuana? All the way up here. I'm, I'm joking. Right. <laughs> You've been there, right? Of course. So you got the Texan border, 
and then you have McAllen Laredo. Okay. Mm -hmm. McAllen, of course, is, if you don't know, north of 65% of all internet traffic out of Mexico flows through McAllen. Area. McAllen. And then the Spice Point heads up to Bryant Street. But with McAllen, the largest metropolitan market outside of McAllen into Mexico is Monterey, which coincidentally, that's where Alejandro's from. Oh, I've, I've, I've done a project there with him. If you profile the entire Mexican population, about 130 million, highest concentration of wealth lives in Monterey. And it's like glowing like the sun in terms of like the average income per capita. Average income per capita in Monterey is north of 70,000 per capita. It's crazy. Yeah. When you, nice get a, when you have a market that on average income per capita is about 20K. So the wealthy live up north. And I think it's for three reasons. These wealthy Mexicans have businesses in Texas. So they want a close proximity to their businesses in Texas. Gotcha. The second one is that because they are international, these families who own international business, they have business in Mexico. So if you're doing business in Mexico, think about New York, right? If you're a bank, insurance company, I don't care who you are. You want to be legitimate, you better have an address on Avenue of the Americas, right? Well, if you're a legitimate business in Mexico, you have a legitimate address in Mexico City on Reforma. But remember, this is Mexico City. This is Monterey. What's the next biggest region as you drive down? Oh, halfway. Yeah. Okay, so it that- splits. So that makes a lot of sense. So what is the limitation to growth? I mean, like you were talking about the biggest pole in the tent was power. power. Yeah, so imagine this is a, this whole country is, you know, is, is basically administered by a national utility provider called SANASE, CFE. And they distribute power to the entire country. These guys have always been used to smaller projects. Like if a, you know, here in Caratero, there's probably 30 manufacturing OEMs on the automotive side at least 15 affiliated with the aerospace industry alone. So Queretaro in the 80s cut its teeth by having Nissan, Honda, Toyota, Cummings, John Deere. They're all down there. And then down there as well, you got Bombardier, right? Building aircraft and assembling engines. So that whole region was already rich in heavy industrial. But imagine the utility provider building projects yeah. with a user like Meat this. It's maybe yeah. three or four megs a piece. I mean, they've never been asked to deliver... 30 megawatts. Is and that what the substation is that you're building right now? No, ours is uh, ours is going to have capacity of 100 megawatts. Oh, wow. All right. So you get to that. So like, so I don't want to rush you through your narrative. Walk us through and dovetail in if you can still how you, you guys started bringing your vision of your data center so once we, to life. Once we kind of got this, you know, this checklist complete and we kind of knew this is early stage validation 2019 2020 okay. yeah this is when we said okay we're not quite ready yet oh i was like what do you mean we're not quite ready yet? we're gonna start like no no you don't understand like, if you're gonna get financed to bite off on this thing you've got to vet out all these traps think like a banker okay so we know it's good at that all great awesome we know that's not it's the hotbed but why are all these groups congregated like right here why are they all centered like at the 10 mile radius of the airport? Well, it's because that's site selection 101, right? And you buy a site, you want it near critical infrastructure. You want it to be near a hospital. You want it to be near an airport. Why? Because if that grid goes down, that's the first protected. grid that goes back up. Yeah. And usually with that kind of infrastructure, you already have high distributed medium tension lines, high tension lines of power. So you're typically just tapping off. But let's take a step back. 
Querétaro itself is a city that was founded in 1440 by the Spaniards, right? 1540, actually. Uh, this is a 500-plus-year-old city that has the infrastructure of a 500-year-old yeah. city, right? Sure. You think about Querétaro, think of Querétaro like being Boston. It's not on a grid. It's everywhere. One minute you're going straight, not realizing you're actually heading south-southwest, and then that you're on the street, now you're heading north-northeast, right? So distributing- It wasn't future-proofed. Oh, yeah. no, by any means. That was a silver mine at one point in time. Querétaro at one point was known as a silver mine for the Spaniards. They were exporting 70% of the world's silver was coming out of those mines in that region. Because again, at the base of this mountain range, right? So you fast forward to the last 10 years, you've got a bunch of flags getting dropped down in a certain part of town. It's like, it's a cluster. They're building this cluster. But none of these guys are able to get power because again, getting power distributed to this cluster requires you to go through the city. A city that has no grid, a city that has no tolerance for high tension or medium tension lines, and imagine a pathway where you got power here, power here, and as the crow flies, it's five miles. But what if I told you to distribute that power is 25 miles of lines? Because you had to... Because you got to do this. You got to go around. Yeah. You're, you're going around easements. You got to get 300 easements to get order to get that power distributed. Oof. So the challenge with this is, and it lies now, is that you've got a bunch of people trying to look in the same spot for power. So the only way I can equate this as to how he did this was, again, Alejandro's background was, I think we're looking in the wrong spot. What do you mean? It's like, I think we're looking in the wrong area. So remember the movie in Raiders of the Lost Ark where the Germans are looking oh, yeah. for the tomb of Solomon? It's like, yeah, they're way off. They're way off. Yeah. Right? Well, Alejandro had intel that basically said, <laughs> they're digging for the Ark of the Covenant in the wrong part of town. We need to go chase this unused power that was developed for three big projects that as a result of COVID failed. These manufacturers never put their plant down there, but the power that was being distributed to feed those big projects were still in play. Was it just the power? Was there other infrastructure that was put into place to support that? There was some infrastructure, but nothing like the stuff that we'd have expected for our data center. Right? How much power were we talking about? In aggregate, over 150 megawatts. Okay, so they were playing on some big boys. Going big down stuff, there to do some really big aerospace. Was coming in. COVID comes, Jake break comes, but that group still kept on building because in effect, those groups that were going to build those projects had already paid for those substations. Oh, so, wow. so they shouldered that, that financial burden, which that, pencils better, right? That infrastructure was already being built and it was built in a completely different part of Querétaro. In fact, it was just outside the city limits. Was it built by government or built by... In... Built by government. Okay. Yeah. So they were more incentivized to find tenants and people that would come down there. And... Exactly. So look, taking a page back from the days of doing the incentive in Arizona, I told Alejandro, we need government support. We need government support at the very highest levels to push this. And how you get government officials to approve of a project like this to knock doors down is you got to tell them what you're going to give them first, right? Because the first job of a politician the day after election is to get reelected. So we sat down with governors of both states. We explained it. We presented economic impact models. We presented the benefits of a data center, not just the direct, but the indirect and the passive. And I mean, it opened up these guys' minds. Like, what are you talking about? Like a billion dollars of spend on one 30 megawatt building. I thought it was like no employees. Maybe direct, but the indirect side and the passive side is massive. And it's long lasting. 
because these people just don't leave. And let me tell you the industries that come in into the marketplace. Again, we're selling something that people have never seen this before. This is old adage for, you know, the union up north. It now has 35 states have incentives, right? They don't let me told this. But for Mexican officials, they have never been like, what do you mean you're going to build a 30 megawatt building? So how do you sell that to them to where they find the value in that? So when we sat down with them, we explained to them, like, look, for every 32 megawatt building we we're going to build, we're going to generate a billion four of economic output. That's what it is. So they're like, okay, so you're going to create jobs. She's like, so you're going to create some serious, serious output in this thing. Like, absolutely. Like, we're not just going to build one. We want to build at least three. <laughs> and you can imagine government's like, okay, what do you need from me? Just three. What do you need from me? <laughs> And from that point, it literally took off. It took off like a Saturn V rocket, right? At that point, it was what doors you need opened. Oh, so the government really leaned in hard. Government leaned in really hard and started really opening doors for us. Now, so looking at that first, obviously, from your finance background, or what point did you get to it where now you're looking at it from the optics of the owner-operator that has to sell capacity down there? Because then you're on bubble right once this happens and people are like okay it's going to take this much time to build it and then right. you know it's going to take this much time to get it you know your first tenant or whatever and um at what point did you now that you figured out that there was some mechanics yeah and there was a you can make a business case to justify to everybody how creative that would be at what point did you have to be like okay but where's the pent-up demand that says that if we build it they will come right so how did you have to engineer that part too because you're in your role, right, you had to be kind of selling both ends to make the middle work, That's right. right? That's right. So, again, going back to the days of digital where we had these relationships with the CSPs, those relationships never went, went away. Yeah, yeah, and maintain. let's not forget, right, when we did the incentive bill in Arizona, I got to know every one of those CSPs firsthand because they were part of the coalition that sponsored it. Sure. You needed their way behind it, not just operators. So, we're, you know, it's fortunate to maintain those relationships through and through, right? And to this date, that's one of the strongest things that I could say that is in my ballywick is this relationship with CSPs. I said, listen, we're thinking about doing this. Is this crazy? And they're like, no. And like, if there was a product there that you felt safe going into, would you go? You right, know? right. And they were like, yeah, we just don't see a path to... Well, it was very defined to us. It's like, it was very articulated to us, whether it was, you know, XYZ company or Acme company. It was like, look, I need three things from you guys. I need predictability on your development on your development, right? Tell me when you're going to develop that building and don't bullshit me, right? Two, I need reliability. I need to know what your building is proven. So don't get cute. If you're in ways thinking about applying the DuPont Fabris model with that, I'm absolutely comfortable with that and doing that in scale. And the third, third, third one was visibility. Okay, so you build me building one. Good for you. You're a one-hit wonder, bam. Show me a path to 50 megawatts. So they can scale. Show me a path to 75 megawatts, right? One CSP specifically was, I'm not talking to you unless you show me a path to 75 megawatts. I bet you I know which one that is. <laughs> so we're like, okay. So we had to go find the land that can support, you know, three buildings, four buildings that get us to 100 megawatts. And then we're like, okay, we got to work backwards and figure out, okay, where are those substations distributing power and how can we get them? So here's what we did. Um, Fast forward, Alejandro was instrumental in all this. So I, I have to absolutely be remiss not to give him that credit. He was like a dog. He just pounded those CSPs, not CSPs, but the, uh, the utility providers. And with the government's help, 
he was able to get us a contract that has never been written the way it's ever been written in Latin America. I don't think it's ever been written like that in North America. We have a pathway to 100 megawatts with exclusivity on those power lines for 15 years. The power can never be sold to another competitor for 15 years. So, um, I first of all, that's awesome if it's a good rate, right? So Exactly. Having exclusivity to that power, but they also probably have a gun to your head and said, you have to be like, this is a rate table that says you have to, you need to be consuming well, this much. You can imagine when you tell somebody you want 100 megawatts, like, well, I'll build you 100 megawatts because you're going to have to buy it on yeah. 100 megawatts. Yeah, I get it. I so, think, but that's high stakes poker of this industry. That, that's, that's right. Same with, it, I mean, the same risk exists even one layer up where you're looking at sites in the first place. You know, I mean, right. like, there's risk to all these things. Yeah. So what we did is we modified what is the power purchase agreement to basically have layers and tranches of options. I was like, look, I, I can't give you a demand schedule for 100 megawatts. I can't give you a demand schedule for oh, 50 megawatts. Not right now. I got to yeah. go back to my end users and find out what their loads look, looks like from a demand side. So in about six months, we were able to do this. It, you know, it probably could have taken a little bit shorter, but you know, a lot of that is educating them. Because never, again, they've never built this kind of power down there. And the beauty is because those power lines were already there. All we were talking about is distribution. But convincing someone that you not only want that power, but you never want them to sell it to anybody else, that's a hard sell. And I can't guarantee you exactly when I'm going to ramp. <laughs> exactly. So with a, with a lot of help of the CSPs, we were able to narrow that scope down to the first two buildings, 64 megs. And we've negotiated what it is a defined demand load to, to deliver that 64 megawatts and a very methodical, slow ramp up to 64. That's perfect. And what it, because of the exclusivity, what it basically does is it gives us a, a silent ROFO from megawatts 64 to 125. Oh, great. And as long as we're biting down on the power that we're supposed to be doing for the first two buildings and we're just ramping the way we should, we don't lose that right on megawatts, 65 to 125. So it sounds like you have the power, you have the location nailed down and logistically, it, it, how far is it from the nearest airport? So when people fly in, how so they, we're as, how do they get there? As the crow flies, we're 54 kilometers, about 36 miles away. From, is that north of Monterey? From, from, from Querétaro, International Airport. Okay, so you could fly right there from you, like Dallas or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the easiest way to get to Carretero is from Houston, Dallas, Miami, or Los Angeles. And it's nonstop, right? Too nonstop flight. Okay, so you have markets. So you got an international. You got an international airport. You can get into. You can get from our from the airport to our site in about fifty-two minutes. Okay, so that's average. You know, as long as you be at the data center within an it's hour all of landing. Way. It's all freeway. So you get there. You have all the power you need for scale connectivity. Where do you guys have to? How challenging was that? So the benefit of that was in part also choosing the right land developer, right? Because an industrial developer of land isn't thinking about fiber. So we had to find, not only, okay, we found the power. We know where it's going to come down. We know where we can distribute. We know we're not going to take it over that mountain range. That's going to be too costly. So we're going to distribute power this way. So we started developing a kind of elliptical zones of where we would want to buy power and buy, bring that power and buy land. So literally, we start just doing concentric crossovers and saying, okay, this is one area we can buy, this is one area we can buy, here's one area we can buy. And we probably looked at 20 sites before we came to the one that worked. And the one that worked 
was one that is owned by a family that's been in the business for 40 some odd years. It's the Amistad family. It's the Marco Ramon family. They have developed industrial parks specifically for the aerospace and high technology sectors. And what they do, it's different, is that when they build their parks, they build their parks with infrastructure at the door. So they bring in 30, 40 MVA substations, which is not typical, right? You typically see substations much smaller. Plus, they build them in a manner that provides for these security protocols that we, you and I have come to know as, like, as must-haves, right? The way the parks are set back, the way the elevations are set back, right? The way the access to the individual lots are set up where you can't drive a... 20 ton truck at 60 miles an hour, bear it right through the gate and run sure. it in. They develop the sites with a mindset of creating like separate moats for their clients. And then they bring in fiber. Now, these groups don't bring in the fiber that we kind of bring in, right? But they bring in the conduits big enough to support? But they bring in the conduits, the splicers, and they bring the splice points where we can do it. So we found two sites for this group and we signed exclusivity on both. So we then we got the power exclusivity locked in we said, hey, great, now let's go get land exclusives to bookend. So now we can power not be distributed and sold to a competitor within our, you know, a, a defined range of radial pattern. But now the landowner can't sell to anyone in the data center business either. So you know, to bubble this bad boy up to 30 seconds, we have the first park in all of Latin America that has scalability from... 32 megawatts on up to over 100 megawatts. They have exclusivity on those poles for 15 years. The landowner can't sell to anyone in the data center business within a 10 kilometer radius for three years. So we've created dual modes of protection. And it enables us, now Now we talk about the, part, the price of that power, right? You want 100 megawatts? Here's the price. We were very fortunate that we were able to convince the utility, listen, I'm going to take a lot of power off of you at about 24 seven 365 load it's going to help you immensely so we are able to negotiate power of most favored nations pricing so what now we can only get that power we get that power at a discount of never less than eight percent to spot market which is huge because it's great to sell you got 100 megs but you're paying 10 and a half cents and the market's paying 10 well that's disadvantageous to them so we get now that rate at no less than eight percent to the marketplace. So they just check marked the CSP is going, okay, my TCO has benefited from that. You've got length, you've got light of sight on power. Now go show me a design. So where, that's is that where Joe comes in? So this is where Mr. Ryan comes in, right? That dude, that dude's an animal. Who doesn't like Joe? He uh cut his teeth at Cisco Hennessy, right? It's got a you know, the story about Joe is amazing. People don't know about Joe is he's really a family guy. Even though he doesn't have kids, like he, this guy wants this guy wants kids more than life, and he's at an age now where he's kind of like really finding himself and like going, okay, I've had the fanfare, I've had my time, I've done my days, I'm ready, ready that kind of want to hone in and settle in. This guy has seen everything. He's been on he's been on the engineering side. He's been with Cisco. He's worked with groups like Aligned. He's done work at Microsoft. He knows how the hyperscales and what they're sensitive of course. to, right? So he's now working on, I call it version three and version four. He's got a version that looks very much like a DuPont Fabro data center. 250 watts a foot, eight megawatt data holes, 
scalable. And then we've got like the ACDC version, like on steroids, which is like 400 watts density. Ooh. Pushing big time uh, prefabrication, right? We're at like uh, having it prefabbed in Mexico or is it in- Part of it would be prefabbed ideally, ideally in Texas, in Arizona and shipped. And part of that would be prefabbed in Mexico. But let's be honest, prefabrication for data centers in Mexico, it's relatively non-existent, right? Because no one's ever built these kind of scales before these projects came on board. I mean, now your roadmap, you look at now the roadmap of Queretaro, Kirk, I mean, it's like, who's not there? So, but I, I asked that question from a function of, uh, you know, you're saying one of those three pillars that you had to answer to was one of them was reliability, right? And for people that are going in, you know, these CSPs that are going into that market, having them see something that's actually built in a modular fashion in a pretty proven static environment somewhere in the United States where QAQC is high. Right. It allows them to maybe feel more comfortable seeing that product come into the United States. I was wondering though, if that's what your guys' delivery model was where you would you know partner up with the, you know, the uh, MPSs of the world and stuff and create whatever the product is and then just truck it down and then slap it together on site. It's, it's basically an erector set, yeah. right, if you will. It's, no, it makes a lot of sense. It's got a it's got a defined backplan on it that everyone's comfortable with. It's got a it's got but a design. That the pro- so that is the product. Then. That is the product. Okay. Yeah. So the idea here is really you're gonna build your powered base shell, your tilt up with steel and post tension second floor. And then you're basically bringing these skids, right? They come in and get slid in on the mechanical side. I do have to think there's got to be some upside to you on the finance side later on when you figure out like, okay, so we're building half these components in Mexico and then shipping them to the United States to be put into a container to be modulized and then shipped back down to Mexico as a full assembly. Like I'm sure that you'll have to engineer that at one point where you're like- There's going to have to be a path for that. So I, I think that if you see the adoption rate of CSPs coming towards Mexico, that the rest of that stuff falls into orbit right around it. Those you would hope so. You think at that point, then the ecosystem of those partners yeah. and your furniture are going to come to you. A hundred percent. Right. You don't even have to solve for that. They'll solve for it themselves. Right. If they could get more than their fair share of the opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, without predicting what the market would look like in five years, I can tell you within three years there'll be factories down there. But but that goes back to you, like you're trying to hedge and handicap your risk of going into these new markets. Right. Um, by you know, probably not getting anything written by CSPs, but they're telling you and that, you know, you read the tea leaves just as good. So now you're like, okay, so now I have a real understanding and you could go give that to, you're, you're triggering the ecosystem to, to rally around it because- That's right. Without, without you being as transparent with them as you hope that your potential clients are, there's no opportunity for them to pivot, right? And if they don't, I think that there are some operators right. that do things and they try to be in that stealth mode the whole time. And I'm like, I've never understood that. I mean, it aligned, we love that, right? Because I'm like, cool, don't tell anybody anything. What mm-hmm. we're gonna do is give them a little bit more of an understanding of the holistic bigger picture. Therefore, they don't see us as one program or one project. They see us as a, a huge scalable thing. Exactly. And then they solve for that scale versus solving for that project. So the more you feed them shit, keep them in the dark, the less likely they are to be able to help mobilize to bring your vision to life. It's a balance. You're going to have to, because you guys are building an ecosystem too, right? If you're the big first mover from, would you guys be the big first mover down there? I think we would be. I mean, I I know that for a fact, there's at least three or four more competitors around. Are those competitors though wholesale? All wholesale. Okay. Anything that's coming in right now into that marketplace is looking specifically to build hyperscale. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Is there like, I remember 
working for an operator and they were looking at stuff in Brazil and there was like eminent domain or, you know, they could, was there any major concerns that you were seeing from CSPs outside of latency or access to scalable power? Cause you're going to have that in the United States too, right? I, 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 yeah. One of the biggest complaints are concerns. Are, or, I say there are more complaints than concerns. I mean, they're just straight out like, listen, we, even if you were to build this project, who's in main it, you know, this is the end users. You know, how are you going to interconnect these buildings? Right, where where are the rings of fiber being already created? Because you just can't build me a data center in Querétaro. How are we going to connect me back to McAllen? Whatever the carrier hotels are, yeah, exactly. And in you know, believe it or not, in Mexico, there's only a handful of carrier hotels. Mexico City, Mexico City, and Querétaro. Okay, yeah, and and to have all that fiber kind of terminate back to one building, it's it's Grand Central Station. Right. So that's not uncommon to tether, you know, from the suburbs back into downtown. Well, one thing that we're now in discussions, I wouldn't say that we're in, in design mode or far from that, is considering putting, creating a carrier hotel on our campus. That's smart. Or Bring, bringing the carriers to our park, right? And creating a third splice point. What do you think about partnering with a retail group that could manage your carrier hotel? We are. We would. Um, we're talking with two specific groups uh, about an opportunity right now because we don't want to manage down at the rack level. We know yeah. what comes with that. Right? I've seen it with digital intellex and where the handoff works and where it doesn't. So we want to be managing the CSPs predominantly and let the retail side handle what I'd say is 350 kilowatts and below, right? And we've got two groups that are really interested right now to putting flags with us, potentially even partnering with us on this project. Because one group doesn't want to just be a tenant, wants to be a partner in the game. They see where the, the, hockey, you know, the hockey puck is going. But relative to like COVID, COVID impacted Mexico no different than the United States. It accelerated COVID, you know, the, the COVID initiative, if you will, of distributed employees where firms were never even open for that. They're like, they have no choice to retain talent. Google, Amazon are just a handful of the groups that said our employees now have to live everywhere. Well, now you got law firms, right? If you think about Mexico City, it is the New York City of Latin America. It's 24 million people. More people live in Mexico City than the state of Florida, which is crazy. And in that cluster, like I mentioned earlier, I with Monterey. That. That's bananas. When Monterey, with all the wealthy that live up here, their business is down here, right? Their second homes are down here. Their plants are in Querétaro, right? So they, this is how it happens. And they live up here in their palaces. They have their second homes, the rich hang out in their country clubs. They have their office. They conduct all their business with the law firms they do business with. And on the way back, they take their private King Air 350 jet, right? Fly to Canada to go see their manufacturing plant. And then from there, they drive back up north. And that's really how it works. It's really that simple. Um, but to get back to your question, right? Of, you know, How do you start de-risking this with the CSPs? You know, you got to start giving this information to the CSPs a year out. We've got line of sight on site. Yeah. We've got line of sight on power. That's great. We'll throw it in into the capacity planning crew's Rolodex, right? And then we've just been methodically just been updating the CSPs as we make progress. And and as every path we've taken, sometimes it's gone laterally, but we've always been able to figure out how to get through it, right? Like one big thing in Mexico, which you don't when people don't realize, to buy land. You not only have to have a Mexican-based entity there set up, but you have a benefit by having someone in your organization be of Mexican descent. It moves paperwork a lot faster because Alejandro is, in fact, right, a Mexican resident with a visa 
in the United States allowed us to move paperwork in Mexico much faster than if it were some guy from Delaware, right? And that's enabled us to get through process, rezoning. I mean, with that kind of like little things like that, where when we bought our land in June, we bought our 23 acres in June. That process should have taken six months to rezone. Alejandro got that done in three days. Yeah. Rezoned in three days. That would be awesome to be able to do that in the oh. United States. Take six months down to three days. Now, look, some things that we thought would take three days have taken three months. Right. There, I, I would be remiss not to say we haven't had our challenges so, like anybody else. So one of the other things that my experience has been, because believe it or not, I, I've done public-private partnership programs before that have a great deal of pressure from you know city, county, state, whatever. And... Um, and you're trying to make everybody happy because you have a client that has demands and then you have the community has things that they need to share. And and one thing that ties those two things together is like those jobs and, and the community impact, right? So mm -hmm. from what you guys are doing in a 500 year old city and now you're creating, um, you're expanding within established industry to really take them more high tech because manufacturing is a completely different industry than what we do, right? What we do is high tech, right? It's technology. We create, you know, the home for the cloud. Or, um, and these are massive buildings that don't just get built and then and people walk away. I mean, people have to mm -hmm. sit there 24, 7, 365 and live and own and maintain these things. Mm -hmm. So the impact that you make on community by kind of essentially creating, you know, on ramps to the cloud or the interweb, what what are those things that maybe that you think the CSPs will impose on you to make sure that that falls in line with their other narrative? You know. Well, I got to tell you, one thing here that's been really profoundly impactful for this company is the passion that Alejandro has for giving back to the community. Sure. Like one thing that when we had started this company, and Alejandro will tell you is that you know he was envious of how the North American markets were prospering, and how no one was paying attention to Mexico. He was envious that. You know, why was it always export of talent and resources from Mexico to the United States? Never a collaboration. Yeah, that's right? always been something that's important to him for sure. He's always been a staunch proponent of giving back. And with that, we intend to create alliances with the like University of Monterey Technology School to create incubators for education for not only STEM students, but to promote more people getting into our business, right? He wants to really promote the next generation of engineers and software designers and, and, and its professionals to look at this industry with seriousness. So we have full intentions to do that. And how we're starting that is in baby steps. Like we're doing a, we're, we're about to get into a collaboration with Nabil Mahmood with his Nomad Foundation. Sure. Right. And we intend to help him create a chapter in Mexico. It enables him to extend that platform that he's been working awesome. hard at here. We intend to, again, go back to university, where University of Monterey is one of the best schools in all of Latin America. It's considered the Harvard. Uh, I think I saw a stat that said they graduate over 100,000 students a year out of their 39 campuses. And if you look at where anyone with talent, education, intelligence, or wealth, they put their kids at the University of Monterey Technology School. And then they send their kids to Yale Brown for their MBAs and bring them back to run their businesses. So. A big part of this is us giving back to the community. Uh, one thing that we've done that I'm really proud about, and this again, this goes back to Alejandro's kind of vision, 
was when we build this thing, we're going to pay U.S. salaries in Mexico. Oh, wow. Right? So that's really going to raise the bar in terms of... There's an interesting book I just got done with called uh, Shoe Dog. Have you ever heard of this one? Mm -mm. And it addresses, uh, it's the story of uh, Phil Knight, the, when the genesis behind um, Nike, right? So before Nike, he had a different um, brand, but it, it takes from the beginning of that mm -hmm. to how he ended up, you know, they, when he closes, he does address the disparity uh, I mean, one of the things that they're attacked on the most is, you know, that you have these kids in China making these shoes that are getting paid five bucks a week, you know, and the shoes sell for a hundred dollars a pair, right? Mm -hmm. So he took some beatings over that and he tried to address it at the end of that book where he talks about how um, the Chinese government wouldn't let him do that. He's like, yeah, we wanted to pay him American wages and the government wouldn't because they said that you would disrupt, you know, these wage pools that exist to where it's just, it's too much too soon to make a big old shift like that. But I mentioned that because I'm like, listen that, listen to the, or read the last chapter of that book because he talks about, you know, you want to do the right thing. And I'm not saying that he was, a. am not advocating for Phil Knight. I don't know other course, than that book. No, I get you. Yeah. But my thing is, is whether he was right or wrong, he did have a, a it seems like he looked at it from a financial aspect and how it impacted the community. So well, look like with anything, right? And and. Again, this conversation just happened like six months ago. Alejandro's like, we gotta hire these guys, these guys, these guys, we're gonna pay them these wages. I'm like, wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Let, what if we were able to pay 80% of American wages, yet these wages would still be a 40% increase over Mexican wages? There you go. And on the P&L, what if I told you by just shaving off a little bit here, right? At least for the first two builds, right? we're able to improve margins by 80 to 100 basis points. All right. Do we really need to do that? What, what, what? And you still leave meat on the bone to give them places to race exactly. to. Exactly. fall within that So mark. we came to a compromise on that, and that's what we're doing. You know, we, we get to meet some of the most amazing people. Like, yeah. I love this industry because there's some genuinely amazing people in this industry. Right. And I've got to, I've been around long enough now to where, like, I've got to see other people develop and grow where, you know, they were in their infancy and now they're, they're making major contributions to the industry in some form or fashion. Sure. So you get to meet amazing people, but you don't really get to know more about them because there's limitations, right? I normally see people at trade shows uh, unless we're, you know, have the opportunity to work in a parallel. Mm -hmm. um, I treat, you know, we see people at trade shows or happy hours or local networking events, and you can only scratch the paint so deep you know, because mm -hmm. you're limited on time mm -hmm. and you're typically immersed around a ton of people. And the, I think that's been one of the greatest things. Like I, when we started DCAC Live, the conference, it was selfishly, I had gone to enough conferences and seen enough and, and I've spoken to uh, uh, them enough to where it just seemed like it was just spitting around the same people. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, why don't we uh, create a platform for others to be heard that, you know, they have a voice that needs to be heard. Mm -hmm. And and if we do it in an environment that's a little bit more disruptive, we could have a greater exchange of ideas. Oh, and I love can, it. I love can, it. It's just more beneficial use sure. of time sure. versus standing at a trade show booth or something. So that's what you know live turned into. And I'm not saying we ever hit a plateau because we play with that format from panels to fireside chats. We've ran it like a TED talk, right? Mm -hmm. My thing is I selfishly was putting people on that I generally like talking to or hearing from. In some cases, people I've never heard or I've, I've never met. Like I never met Missy Young, right of switch mm -hmm. until she came to DCAC to speak. 
And that year she was all the feedback was that she was the she was rated number one, right? So mm -hmm. she crushed it. But I mean, those are the greatest parts of those conferences you go to is you are pleasantly surprised by someone that you meet or you thought you knew you had a chance to know them better. But taking all of those things and refining it down was the podcast is allow I mean, now I don't just have those people in orbit, but I get to even go I get to go about a mile deep into some of those relationships oh, of with them to learn more right. about, right. you know, not what they do or how they do it, but more importantly, why they're doing it. Like, where did they start from and how did they get here? Because this is the deal. There's someone that has a similar parallel of a background where they were in a windfall opportunity right out of college, didn't know how good they had to sort of speak, and then just had someone kind of coaching or guiding them through. And they just stumbled or kind of continued to roll forward into the mm -hmm. next evolutional shift of their their career. Mm -hmm. And there's people that are going to be listening to this podcast that are going to hear yours that are going to be like, hey, look, man, if this guy could do it, you know, I can do it. But now they'll also more more likely have a more genuine understanding of who you are. And then ultimately, you know, by the time we're done, have a better understanding of what you're doing down in Mexico, right? And what sure. you're doing, how That's you're true. doing and why yeah, you're yeah. doing it. But yeah. um, this podcast thing, it doesn't take long. You can sit down and especially if we're in the, I mean, this is a morning podcast. It's the first one we've done, which is why there's no tequila. I'm not a horrible person. Plus I, I do have DCAC next week. So I'm kind you, of you gotta, saving myself. You gotta control yourself. But my thing is, is like, it doesn't take long if you're passionate about this industry to to just go for a couple hours and, and I, we'll bring it to, we'll bring it around the horn. But I also am okay with it. And I'll tell you why. I've only had a few complaints about the length of the podcast. There was a couple people that said something on like LinkedIn why they have to be so long and i'm like you don't have to listen to it if it's that too long but for me it's you know the ones i've been listening to i'll put them i'll pop them on a car i'll download them on a plane i'll listen to them and again you know there are people as an industry that i thought i knew and then you're like i don't know nothing about them yeah for I, sure i knew nothing about right how their backgrounds came to be and and we all, for whatever it's worth, it's a bit like Vegas, right? No one's from Vegas, but everyone loves Vegas. <laughs> yeah. Our industry is a bit like that, where people come from different diverse spokes of life, and they some fall into it, some are called to it from the beginning. I mean, one of our guys, and, uh, and I consider him a friend first, before I consider him a colleague and an investor, Scott Davis, who's former chief technology officer at DuPont Vavros. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Scott, yeah I do know him. Scott's an investor in Layer 9. Scott's, Is he? Scott's, Scott sits on our board. Scott's extremely instrumental on our vision and how we get there, right? On the designs and configurations. Smart and guy, obviously. Oh, well, guy cuts his teeth from AOL. But I thought I knew Scott Davis until I got them. to work with Scott Davis, yeah. right? And now this human being that I've gotten to know as an individual, uh... I, I'll, I'll tell it to his face. You know, he's inspired me in so many different ways. And I thought I knew him at DuPont. I knew all of him at DuPont. I didn't work for him at DuPont. Um, but he has just a way of doing things. He just kind of breaks things down into components and simplifies them. Like, help me understand this. Before we even get there, help me understand this. And it's an aspect of the business that I, even today I'm learning because that's the design piece of it that I never got exposure to at digital, right? I was oftentimes given a design by... Little Pfeiffer, Rich Betcher, Steve Kundich, and be like, can we build at the $8,500 kilowatt? <laughs> right? Perfect. Just but, tell me what you don't want. Right. Right. And But guys like Scott, you know, as I've gotten to know them, uh, have just brought in such an invaluable piece of this, but it's not for their skill sets. It's like for their innate leadership, right? So it's funny you say all of that because um, I've only met him a couple times, but 
let me tell you why I remember him having met him the least. So if you look at people that were in his role, sure. all of his competitors, mm -hmm. who I've known or met with and spent time with, those are people that are traditionally shouldering a great deal of pressure and they're a little intense when you engage with them, rightfully mm -hmm. so, right? They're yeah. managing so many crazy, I, you know, we talk about the building of a data center and the operation of a data center, but like it, one's more ran like combat and the other one's more like running a data center, right? Mm -hmm. And you have people that have to process at both levels and there's, it takes a special thing. But I remember sitting down with him and Rick Waddle one time back, back when Chris was, you know, this is before mm -hmm. the shift. And, mm -hmm. and the thing that I remember the most about him was how is he so chill when most people in that role were always going crazy. And I also, you know, someone told me like, well, he's got 25 clients. So, you know, he, I'm like, but still, he's obviously got a system that he has disciplined or created and then runs it with discipline to you where know, he doesn't have to be so Had I not known his background when I met him and as I've gotten to know him, I immediately thought he was in the military just think, by the way he carried himself. So did I. I think that maybe that's another reason because like I said, I don't, he wouldn't even remember my name probably. But my thing is, is he just seemed different than some of the other guys. Maybe just cool hand look at even when they know that the walls are coming off the side of the building. He's not, he's just cool. He hand just seemed look. chill. Yeah. And he's very deliberate in his comments, right? He's not one to speak much, but when he does, he speaks volumes, right? And he's been able to take experience going back from AOL. So, so like understanding the product and. I get it, and I think a lot of people, I mean, the genesis of this was for people to learn about you and what you guys are doing, and hopefully they could find your website fairly easily online. Tell me about the chemistry, because you do have some cool people at this, so you've been able to collect, it sounds some, like some cool people that are either on your board or your advisor. Yeah, so let me, let me kind of walk through kind of the, the makeup of the group, because what you see on the website is deliberately just the front stage, mm -hmm. right? We've been really, fortunate and honored to have some really amazing people behind us at the investing level and at various levels of the stack. And I'll get to that in a bit, but for the sake of time, I'll just keep it high level. When we were inceptualizing this company, you know, immediately the thing became, became the concept of how we're going to tilt her up financially, right? How do we do that? That's where I'll tell you that as much investment banking experience, experience digital realty experience at DuPont, I've never tilted up a company. Right, I've never been at the grassroots of like building Creating from one. the basis. I mean, this is truly like finding pouring footings and putting rebar. I'm like, I've never been at that point. So for me, it was a learning experience. And in order to do that, I surrounded myself with people who ran businesses and who built companies from the very beginning. Because again, I, I, I continue to self-reference my dad a hundred times in this interview. My dad has always taught me, you're only as good, right, as your weakest link. True. Right in your platoon, you're only as good as the weakest guy who can't take the shot, or the guy that falls asleep. You don't want him on post, right? Figure out what your weaknesses are and go get your resources to help build that. Build your platoon, build your squadron, mm -hmm. right? And for me, it was like I don't know how to raise capital. I don't know how to raise a Series A. I don't know how to raise a you know five hundred million, a billion of you know of capital to build these buildings. So uh, I was able to leverage a relationship with a guy named Jerry Jepson. And Jerry had built a really profound business at CPG, mm. sold it like a couple of years ago to Columbia Capital. Mm -hmm. And Jerry, with whom I have known as an individual who I now call a friend, is a guy that really lent his ear on, hey, these are the things that we had to go through and the pitfalls and the questions that we didn't ask that you didn't think through in kind of a playbook. He, 
he held my hand and, and did helped. he was he the start of the, did he originate or was he founder of CPG? He is one of the founders. Okay, so that's lot. he had the scars yeah. of learning how to start from him that and way. Anthony Rizzo. Okay, exactly. Is he yeah. with you too? He is also an investor, and oh, he sits okay. on he's on our, sits on our board. Yeah. Nice. So so I got guys like Scott Davis, who's just a, a library of Congress of information. Sure. I got real life, you know, building 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 businesses, knowing how to manage groups like Microsoft that CPG serviced with Jerry Jepson. I've got a guy named Fernando Limon who runs electrical distribution down in Mexico. He's run a business for 20 plus years, knows the lay of the land, knows how to negotiate in country, right? Then we've got a guy like Nabil Mahmoud, who's on our board now, sure. right? Who's helping us with the education side, the giving back side, the philanthropic side, a platform because he's a, you know, he's a pronounced- he's got a, he's got a podcast. He's got a podcast and more importantly, he's got reach, right? What's his po- Nomad Futurist. Is Nomad podcast. Futurist. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah, dude, shout out to that. Um, and then we've got a, a plethora of other investors, uh, to be exact, 26 of them in total, right? That form our Series A group that come from really diverse backgrounds of development, real estate, finance, right? Uh, that help really round out the investor group that makes the Series A what it is. And- I speak to these folks 10, 15 times a week, right, for resources. And they have lent themselves and, you know, Scott works his ass off. Jerry works his ass off. Fernando works their ass off. They do far more than what a typical board does, right? You know, kind of Scott's hearing this. He's like, you know, there's a, you know, I'm going to do a Scott Davis voice. There's a, you know, if I start working any more damn hours, I'm just barely be put on the payroll. Uh. <laughs> So I can see that. But, you know, his passion for the business is as true as it was when he left, right? Jerry is an immense resource. So what we have is a, a an immense support team from the investor side that allows us to have credibility. Yeah, that's what you need from your board. And then here we got the team, right? It's Joe on the development side, Alejandro from the operations side. And now we're bringing on another four to seven people before the end of the year to fill roles in the finance sales right uh, it's like who are you gonna have that's your salesperson or are you the sales guy i guess until you find out no you know there's, there's we've got a couple resources inside that we, we've got probably 10 consultants right now working for us in various categories and what we've done is we've been test driving each of them and this is why we've been doing that is culture i think you asked about earlier about mm-hmm. culture culture of dupont fabros is really bleeding deeply into this one right where it was the mindset of just keep it simple stupid take care of the client and execute right Let's get rid of the political red tape and the hierarchy of approvals, right? Let's just get right to what makes the customer happy, that makes our clients happy and makes our investors happy. Let's do deals that make sense, but let's not get too caught up into like the inner workings of a construct of a master lease agreement if the customer just wants clarity, right? So we're driving towards a culture that really allows for just a candid open nearness about sharing ideas. And we, you know, between the investors and ourselves now, we have meetings twice a month that really get into like where we are with things and how we're problem solving and what's the target look like, right? And what, is, what is that target? I mean, like when's the, like, when do you bring this product online? So you we have an open house or a kickoff or something? We groundbreak October 11th. Okay. Right? And we intend to break ground in March. We've, now that we're complete with our Series A, which is really the hardest money to raise because people truly are investing in a concept and people. Mm-hmm. There's no product, there's no lease, there's nothing. Yeah. When we did the A, we had no land, we didn't have the power in place. 
We had a concept and a master plan and a dream. And now the B capital, which is the heavier race capital, is again, know your resources, know your capabilities, bring in people to help. So now we've been extremely blessed. We have uh, the investment bank of Lazard backing us. So now Lazard's going to go raise for us is in excess of a billion five of capital. And what that capital is going to do is allow us to have a platform to be able to build not only the three buildings that we have in Querétaro, but as I mentioned earlier, we have an option to go north to Monterey. So we want to replicate that model and take another hyperscale development in Monterey. Interesting. Our goal is to create, if you will, kind of a ring of fire of Latin American data centers that are specifically catered to the cloud. Now, so we'll begin in Mexico, but we will not stop there. We will go into South America. We have some places in mind because some clients have, you know. Are you just looking to kind of maybe daisy chain from Texas or Arizona all the way through Mexico? And well, we're not sure yet. What's the geography separation? Is for, it uh, latency? Is it well, power? For right now, because a lot of the, the, the countries in South Latin America are adopting data sovereignty, that data has to sit in that country. It can't be expatriated, right, Yeah. to another market. Mexico now has laws that now don't allow us, uh, don't, don't allow its citizen data to sit in Laredo or San Antonio or, or Dallas. It has to rest in Mexico. The other part of this is gaming, right? Media, downloads, right? Use of data now for Mexico has quintupled the cost of data for a phone. We said this before, smartphone in, in Mexico is not much different than buying a smartphone in the United States. It was the cost of accessing that gigabyte of data. It was so prohibitive. You know, in the United States, it's about two, two and a half percent of your disposable income is what you spend on a phone. You know, in Mexico, it's about 20%. Oh, wow. If you hop over and go to Africa, it's north of 49%. And there's a, there's a very specific correlated number that when you start seeing the cost of data going down, the use of data exponentially increases. So as the citizens of Mexico continue to gulp down, bite down more information, businesses now are dealing with the distributed workforces. So now they're going to have to put their stuff in the cloud. They can't keep everybody up in one building in reform on having the Americas of Mexico, right? So you got cloud exploding. 75% of the country relies on three apps to drive its social media interactions, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Meta. And then down that daisy chain goes, you know, five, six, seven, eight, the same ones groups that you and I deal with all the time. And the use of their information, the amount of data being gulped down by the Mexican residents is just crazy. Ten years ago, it was less than a gigabyte. Now the average Mexican resident's biting down on 25 gigs a month. So cloud has to be downloaded to service them last mile. Right? Are you saying that like if you had more capacity down there that the adoption rate would also... Oh, absolutely. Alan Tucker used to coin a phrase in Virginia all the time, you know, supply creates demand, right? And I believe... market for sure. I believe that to be true. If you look at any statistical graph that shows where the markets are growing fastest, it's Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America. And of the three, Latin America has the highest income per capita and capital spend on data than any other region in the world in the emerging markets. Right. The other thing I love about Mexico is that when you compare it to other Latin American countries, that economy is much more in line with the United States. Right. It's a joke. Right. America gets a cold. Mexico's given the Kleenex. Right. Because they don't want their partner to get sick. The alliance between these two nations is 
stronger than ever in terms of their exports imports right back and forth and because they do realize themselves as a democratic society as opposed to other groups in latin america where it's more closed economies their inflationary index their unemployment mirrors that of the us so there's less geopolitical risk there's less economic risk and with less economic risk means you borrow less right you pay less on that return that you have to give those banks and investors to mitigate for other countries where it's normal for some countries in Latin America to have compounded inflation of 8%. 8% per month. Oof. Can you imagine that? No. We're like one moment, right? Gas is dollar ninety-seven a liter, and next month it's four fifty. Next month it's six bucks. Well, listen, this is really exciting to learn that it sounds like you guys will have the first mover's advantage on a bigger scale, at least in that part of the northern Mexico. Right. And, and um, it sounds like there's going to be opportunities for people in the ecosystem that even exists in North America that will be able to contribute to that because you're going to be building product, you know, in the States and moving it down there. Right. So. Absolutely. Um, we won't be the we won't be the first in the last. We'll be just the first entrant that has an advantage. Will you spread out? I mean, outside of just Monterey, but we move further down or Mexico City eventually and just keep leapfrogging. I think we're going to go definitely into Latin America, right? Gotcha. Potentially Chile and Colombia, maybe Costa Rica. But will all of what you guys do stay in South America? Will you do anything in the U.S.? You know, that's a great question. The answer to that is I don't know, right? I just don't know. I think that with North America, you've got some of the players here that are so well baked out in these markets and that the commoditization of that product has now been put to a point where it's all about speed to market. It's all about getting access to power. And look at look at Northern Virginia, right? A market that you thought would just never stop growing is now got a jake break on it because Dominion just can't build substations enough fast enough yeah. to deliver last mile. And also when I think about the returns, right? And you got markets that have a high degree of saturation of like, it's basically everybody and anybody. And they all these groups do great jobs of building these products. Pricing gets diluted big time. It becomes a tenant favorable market. Because right now there is none of this product in Latin America of this scale, or this size, of this predictability. The delta on the asking rents is material. And the returns that I can get on this product resembles that back of like 10 years ago, right? Where I'm able to get, you know, low teens returns on leverage return on this stuff. So what that does for us is that helps mitigate that it's geopolitically riskier to do business in Mexico. So the banks get comfort like, okay, but your asking rents are a hell of a lot higher. They're 25% higher than that of North America. And the cloud is willing to pay that so long as you can give them that visibility. To scale. Absolutely. Look, we're not, again, we don't think we own this thing. Uh, I have no doubt within two years, you're going to see Cloud HQ yonder right you're going to see those boys dropping flags but we'll have first mover advantage and ideally with that 100 megawatt pathway it gives us kind of a biosphere protection to give us protection to leap into other markets so um we'll we'll bring the podcast home here in a little bit but i always like to ask a few other questions the first one is and you kind of uh we're talking about how you had to evangelize this to a 500 year old city but in general, even in the States, like when you tell people, what do you do? What do you tell them? My daughter says it best. My eight-year-old daughter, who's really intellectual. She's, they're all bright. All my three girls are just amazingly bright. And they're amazingly humble, which I love. Because that's like one of the things as a parent, right? When you raise them, 
you give them more than what you had. But I remember when before my mom passed, she's like, don't give them too much. Otherwise, they'll never learn the concept of working for it. Oh, gotcha. My, my, my daughter, who's eight, is always just intrigued with everything that I do. And we were at one time in a, in a classroom, and, and I didn't quite understand how to describe my job. Mm-hmm. But after her hearing all these conference calls, and right, she got up and said, my dad helps build the internet. Ooh, all right. That's the most simple answer I've gotten so far, and I've asked that question to everybody I can. Right. right? So and, and, and when I, you know, when someone that doesn't understand our business, I lead off with that. I help bring and build the digital infrastructure highway that provides for the internet. That's true. I like it. Yeah. I think uh, there's a campaign that we're doing is like, what is a data center? You know, and it's funny, you could ask five different people and get five different answers. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I mean, that's the first time I've had that answer, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, no, what my, my other question I like to ask people is, so what do you tell someone that's listening that started their career, um, you know, within the last year or two and kind of an odd time to enter the industry, you know, post COVID, cause you see a lot of things that are a little bit different than the norm. But uh, as, as things kind of go back to the new norm, you know, you'll see, you know, major, major swings and shifts. It's a very heavily growth focused industry that has cyclical swings between markets, right? So right. what do you tell these people? You know, what would be your advice to someone that's driving right now that's like, man, maybe I, I work for an operator, maybe I should go work for a broker, or, you know, or yeah. maybe they're just, they're not sure what they're doing, but they are looking for the right thing and they don't know what to do. Yeah. Um... I don't know if I would have appreciated that guidance 10 years ago because I didn't understand this business 15 years ago, right? But now that I've had a little bit of a dabble in it, my advice to those graduating in any form of STEM, science, engineering, or mathematics is that this is not a function of this is the future. This is absolutely the now and the tomorrow. Everything that you do in any vertical that you work in will be touching a data center, right? And if you don't have an understanding of it, there'll be someone who will, right? That you need to understand how. And it's one of the few verticals in my entire life that I've ever seen that it touches every aspect of a business, right? For the first time, operations speaks to finance and finance speaks to real estate or real estate speaks to IT. And it's all underpinned by how secure is the data part? Where's the data parked? How secure is it? Is it distributed? Who owns it? Who manages it, right? And can we protect the information of our customers on it, right? I think the other piece of advice I'd give young kids, teenagers, right, is that this industry is limitless, right? And someone asked me on a panel four months ago, what would you like to see in five years? And I didn't even have scripted, but it just came out. I was like, I'd love to see half this room women. I'd love to see a third of this room minority, right? And I'd love to see the rest of us either mentoring in either pathway or culturally driving our businesses towards that. Because these people that have never been exposed to this market think that there's a high barrier because it's 91% male, right? Or if you look in a room, it's a bunch of middle-aged white guys, right? True. And the reality is, is that I think sometimes when I think about like the story of like Serena Williams, what she did for black American women, black girls, Women in general, women of minority, the thing I could actually play tennis at the highest level. Sure. I think that creates an opportunity for us and it's an obligation that we have. And I think it's a big part of why, you know, Alejandro is so staunch about giving back, not only to 
Mexico, but help teaching that next generation. We've, we've got to do that. Well, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Well, listen, thanks for making your way to Austin. Yeah, man. And uh, it's good to spend time with you and yeah, get to learn about, I mean, I had no idea that Trump story was it's, wild. It's an honor and a privilege. Well, thanks for making the trip, man. Hey, man. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Thanks, brother.